The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Nice to meet you, man. Hey, thanks a lot. Man. I appreciate what you do. What you do is a very valuable service because you go so deep on some of these scammers. It's like it's so important because there's so many people that just they don't really understand what's going like the FTX thing for example is the best one cuz i was so in the dark about this thing i was like what is happening like what are they doing try to break it down for us like what first of all what is a, it's a crypto exchange right so yeah, how does right. how does that work so the first question is when you get in when you learn about crypto you're like it's this magic internet money magic how do you get some of that how do you get some of that magic <laughs> right. internet money uh, well you have to go somewhere to buy it and so it's a crypto exchange is where you kind of go, you put your fiat on your dollars or whatever, euros or whatever, and you put it into this crypto exchange. They have a bank and they work with that bank. Then they exchange that money for some type of crypto token. There's a lot of different tokens out there. And Explain tokens because I don't understand tokens. I know there's crypto and there's tokens. Like, what is the difference between the two? Yeah, of them? tokens like is the individual. You can think of currency, right? So it's like the okay. individual. So Bitcoin is, you know, you have Bitcoin. Then you have it's one of the cryptocurrencies. You have Ethereum. You have Dogecoin. You have SafeMoon. You have FTT, which is what FTX was using as their native token. So a lot of these guys, you'll start a crypto exchange. And then you'll launch your own token that people can invest in, sort of like they're investing almost in your crypto exchange. And so that was actually one of the ways that FTX really perpetuated their fraud. I, I can break it down. How much do you know about the FTX situation? Let's break it down for people that don't know yeah. about it. So Let's do it. So okay. FTX was this uh, crypto exchange located out in the Bahamas, which is a great place to put your- uh, Why do they do it in the Bahamas? Because it's unregulated. So the problem with doing stuff in the United States or, you know, some something like Europe or something like that is you're you are subject to all these regulations which require you to be a little more careful. Oh, those are pesky. Yeah, Get they're, they're annoying. The so we like, like that. the famous example is like Coinbase is in America and they have to file all these forms. They have to be they're a regulated entity. They're a publicly traded company. So they have to report everything. So if you're offshore, you can kind of not do any of that. You can play fast and loose. And, you know, for some people, they think that's better. They can offer, let's say, like 100x leverage. Like you have a dollar. I'll let you trade with $100. And that's that's going to be like one reason you come to my offshore exchange. I can offer you more leverage than the guys who are like, you know, Coinbase or something like that. Right. So FTX launches. Let's start with who Sam Bankman-Fried is. He's kind of at the center of all of this. Sam Bankman-Fried is this guy who comes. He's the son of two uh, Harvard lawyers. Then he comes up prep school. He's kind of like um, built for success. Right. He goes to MIT, goes to Jane Street as this quantitative trader. And then he goes into the crypto space and he launches FTX. Or, He's sorry, very young, right? How old is he? I think he was. He, he is young. I'm not. Maybe you can look that up, Jamie. 31. 31. Um, he launches Alameda Research first, which is just like this trading firm, which basically the idea here is we have some ideas. We're going to raise a little bit of money and we're going to do these trades that are profitable in crypto. So the way he first made his money was he did something where he bought uh bitcoin in uh the u.s and then he sold it on these japanese exchanges where it was worth more so this there he was 
uh, arbitraging this difference in prices. And then after he made his money that way, he launches FTX in 2019. And that's a crypto platform where, honestly, you can make a lot more money than just with a trading firm. So FTX quickly skyrockets in popularity. They bring on people like Tom Brady to promote it. Larry David in the Super Bowl. They kind of get buy-in from all these big sort of names and also reputable people like BlackRock, Sequoia Capital. They all invest in this guy. Kevin O'Leary famously promoted it for like $18 million. They gave him $18 million to promote it? He says he lost it on the platform. He says the $18 million was on FTX or whatever, and he never he never got a dollar out of it. But that was the, what the deal was for. So they were paying everybody to promote this FTX ex- crypto exchange. And the idea was, is this is the next, uh, the next big thing, right? And this is where you're going to make money. There was a lot of fear of missing out or FOMO in the, in the markets at the time. You know, everyone thought, oh, cryptos, you have to get in now, right? Because if you get in now, you're going to make some money. And so people invested in FTX thinking that this is going to be uh, a safe platform. This kid is smarter than everyone else. He's the son of Harvard lawyers. We just sort of can't lose. And nobody paid attention to some of the red flags that were going on until ultimately it was too late. It turns out he was pilfering FTX, the customer deposits, and was using it in Alameda Research, which was his trading firm, to try to make extra money. And he lost it. And so this is all because it's unregulated. Like if he was doing this, like Coinbase can't do this. Is that correct? Yeah. Coinbase is much more heavily scrutinized. They actually have to file uh, with the SEC. They have to say what they have, where they're putting their money. They're subject to more regulation about like how they take care of customer deposits. One of the big things with FTX was they told people, hey, you put your money with us. We're not going to touch it. We're not going to move it. That's what FTX said in their terms of service. So one of the really... uh, big problems was they actually weren't doing that, but nobody knew because nobody had a look at their books. Like it was very opaque. Nobody knew what was going on behind the scenes. So even though they said like, we're not going to touch your money, as soon as you deposited Bitcoin, I mean, I talked to some of the insiders at Alameda. They said they had this uh, backdoor system to where they could see you, Joe, deposit a Bitcoin on FTX. They could grab that Bitcoin and start trading with it immediately. Wow even though they were never supposed to be able to touch your money, obviously. That was the whole point. It's like, you deposit with us, we're not going to do anything with your money. It's your money. It's like a depo- like we're, It's almost like a bank. Like you deposit right. with a bank. Your bank uh, isn't supposed to go ahead and take your money and go start trading with it unless, you know, obviously we have FDIC insurance, stuff like that. But like they didn't have that. They, had, they just take your money, go trade with it, and that's where the disaster started. I really enjoyed you catching him on Twitter spaces. I really enjoyed that. I listened to that whole thing because because before that you have this guy who's this, you know, whiz kid, who you listen to him talk. He has an answer for everything. He's so articulate. He's so knowledgeable. Like I listened to previous interviews before he got busted, and then when you have him on, there's a lot of um. I I wasn't aware. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't. I'm not aware of that. I don't know. There was all this hemming and hawing and a lot of ums and ahs and and you just kept on him it was amazing that he first of all it was amazing that he felt like he could do something like that like why would he publicly communicate this is one of the 
This is why it's so interesting to me to look at fraud. Like this is why it fascinates me as well as I think it's an important thing to expose. But like I'm interested in the characters who perpetuate fraud because they're such interesting psychological case studies. Sam Bankman Freed, you could probably write a whole book about the fact that this guy, he got away with lying so long and perpetuating this image of himself as this generous billionaire. You know, he's sort of the next Warren Buffett that when everything goes wrong, he thinks he can reestablish control because he's so smart. He is such a good liar that he's like, I can just lie my way out of it. So I think that's why he ultimately talked. His idea was if I lied my way into it, I can sort of lie my way out of it. Mm. And this is what he did. So I prior to this, I'd interviewed him twice before and I had kind of gotten hamstrung with the like, you know, he's just so good at dodging stuff. You'd did you ask, interview him before the scandal? No, not before the scandal. So it's like as it was going down. As it was going down, he goes on all these Twitter spaces. He doesn't want to. He's doing interviews with everybody. I ask him and uh, he doesn't want to talk to me. So he, but he's going on these Twitter spaces. So I keep I like was tracking when he'd go on a Twitter space and I would contact the people ahead of time. I said, hey, at the end, when you're like ready for this thing to go down, because I know as soon as I get on, it's going to end pretty quickly after I said, let me on. Let me ask him some real hard questions because all these guys are like, Sam, you know, we appreciate your transparency. All these mm. kind of kissing up a little bit. But I was just like somebody has to ask him some real questions. So I had two prior little Twitter space interactions with him. And he kept getting away with the fact that he blamed all the wrongdoing of FTX on Alameda Research. And he said, I don't control Alameda Research, even though he was the owner. He's no longer the CEO as of 2020. He hands it to this uh, a girl he actually had a relationship with, Caroline Ellison. Right. And she supposedly controlled it. He said she did everything. I don't have access to the book. Like I basically knew nothing. So anytime you'd call him out on an issue, you'd say, where's the money? He goes, well, it's, I don't know. It's gone. It's Alameda Research. Ask Alameda. So by the third interview, I'd studied him and I said, okay, how do we get down to FTX's responsibility in this whole thing? And I kept coming back to, it was the terms of service that said, you cannot move, like when I deposit with you, you're not going to touch my money. And I said, Sam, if that's true, where's the money of all these people? You, there's, no, there's no Ethereum left. There's no Bitcoin left. You don't have the real tokens anymore. You just have your sort of nonsense uh, FTT tokens, the tokens you invented. And he said, oh, uh, well, you know, there were some margin trading accounts. And I'm like, no, but there were people who didn't trade with margin. There were people who just put their money with you. And they all they wanted was they wanted to store some Bitcoin with Tom Brady. They wanted to be alongside Tom Brady. So he's like, well, uh, well, you know, there was fungibility between wallets. And it's like, well, what's fungibility mean? It means whether you were a guy withdrawing who had who is this degenerate day trader or you were a grandma with who just put one Bitcoin on there or, you know, more likely the grandson. He treated all the accounts the same. So when everyone came running for the money, they just withdrew until nothing was left. And ultimately, because they had lost billions of dollars, it left billions of dollars in credit claims, basically. They didn't have the money. And so now it's trying to be sorted out by the guy who literally unraveled Enron. And he says, this lawyer, this lawyer goes, it's worse than Enron. I watched the CEO, the new CEO, talk about it. Yeah. About him trying that's, that's to- That's John Ray. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trying to unravel it. And it's amazing. It's amazing that things with this amount of money 
can get this far sideways before anyone knows what's going on. This is the problem with offshore uh, offshore accounts and stuff. I, like, actually, his whole technique of shifting the blame, like onto Alameda, and like I don't control Alameda. I've seen something very similar. I'm investigating this Ponzi scheme that's offshore, and like one of the first things the guy does is he controls it, but he renounces ownership. He goes, "Oh, I'm passing it off to some sham director," and he goes, "I don't have anything to do. I don't know where's the money. I don't know." But he controls everything. And so it's like this is the this is the tactic of these offshore companies is like you put the right people in charge who are going to take the fall. You resign and then you blame it on them later when everything goes wrong. His problem, though, is Caroline Ellison flipped on him. So she definitely flipped on him. She was smart. Yeah, yeah. She she cooperated that uh, her and I believe Gary Wang were big executives. They're cooperating. They pled guilty. They're cooperating with the feds. I mean, they did the smart thing, which is. Something like this happens, you shut up. You don't say anything. Right. And then you point at your boss. I mean, that's basically what they did. Oof. Which they for sure did stuff wrong, too. You do yeah. not get to that level and not know that things were wrong. Well, reading her tweets about amphetamine use w- was pretty wild, too. The whole scene was wild. The fact that they were all living together and fucking each other in this giant penthouse this $40 billion penthouse, the, the the things, it's insane. It's really, I almost wish it wasn't a scam. I've said this before because I was, I was kind of, I root for nerds to like be that successful that you just completely living outside the norms of society, just fucking each other on amphetamines and making billions of dollars. Like it sounds like a, a great story if it wasn't illegitimate. Yeah, that's, I mean, ultimately, that's the problem. Like, Sam was just hopped up on amphetamines playing League of Legends <laughs> while on investor calls. Like, at the time, that was seen as this charming, like, yes. genius thing. On calls. On calls. He's yes. play, you could hear, even actually, okay, so this is funny. They found his League of Legends account, and during some of the calls after it was a fraud, they could you could hear him clicking in the background. Click, 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 click. He's playing League. Like they tracked his account. He's playing league while on calls about the failure of FTX. Wow. Just wow. imagine the arrogance. Is that arrogance or is it just pure addiction? I think, you know, those multiplayer games, those, you know, online role playing games, that's what that is, right? It's like a. It's a, I think it's a. Is it a MOBA? I used to play. I used to play like a variant of League, so I, I know. I know it's fun, but but it's not like fun to the point. Look, this guy's whole thing was like, I'm this effective altruist. Um, yeah, I'm this guy who's going to maximize good in the world, you know. And that was his reason for working all the time. I mean, that's the justification for to be hopped upon amphetamines. It's like maximize productivity, maximize human happiness. You can't do that and then say, oops, I played a little too much of my video games and lost billions of dollars. Like, this doesn't fly. Well, he wasn't saying that I played the video games yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, why he... I lost the money. But but after the fact, he's like, loot, like he's pl- still playing video games and you're like, can you have the decency to get off the video game and talk to people? <sighs> so bizarre. It's, it's just so bizarre that so many people got duped. And I felt the same way about Bernie Madoff. You know, I'm not a... a financially aware person i'm not i'm not into the market i don't i don't follow these things so when i see something like that go down i'm like how did he get steven spielberg you know how did how does someone like a bernie madoff or uh sam bankman fried how does he get these people to do this and in the ftx case how much of it was getting celebrities to endorse the platform it's huge this is what i wanted to say like 
the more I study this stuff and, and you start to have repeat occurrences, like I just cover stuff all the time and, and you see echoes of the same thing. I just had somebody just a couple of days ago, I was interviewing for this for this news scheme we're looking at and, and he said, you know, I never understood how Bernie Madoff got people because it seems so preposterous. And then I fell for something very similar. And what I notice with all of these things, the thread is you believe, you know, it's kind of too good to be true, but the social proof is overwhelming and it overwhelms your kind of like alarm bells. So the social proof is a combination of things. So first of all, it's like, it's this guy who drives a Toyota. So you go like, well, why does he need to scam me if he's driving a Toyota, right? Then it's like, uh, which Sam Bankman-Fried did. Then it's like, okay, Tom Brady backs him. Well, Tom Brady's got to have some guys who are looking into this. And then it's like, well, BlackRock backed him. Well, BlackRock definitely has some guys who looked into it. Right. It's Sequoia Capital. They said he was... Uh, might be one of the first like trillionaires or whatever like like he's such a great entrepreneur they think he's such a genius i actually it might have been uh one of the a1z guys or uh uh i'm blanking on the name right now but a a1z what is that no 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 i'm sorry uh I, i'm blanking on it's this famous <laughs> i'm gonna remember it right after i get out of here it's one of the famous um like uh investment funds they invested in a bunch of nft projects mark andreason i think yeah. Is the guy who runs it? Hmm. Jamie's looking it up. I thought I knew it off the top of my head, and now I don't want to say the wrong one. A16Z. A16, A1Z. A16Z. I can't, it was one of those, Sequoia or A16Z. One of them wrote this glowing review of Sam, basically saying he's going to be one of the first trillionaires. Um, so all these guys, basically, a lot of these people backed Sam with the highest endorsements. And so if you're just an average person, you're thinking, well, how much more due diligence can I do than all these other guys? All these other guys buy into him. Right. And like, and then they themselves are kind of also looking at each other being like, well, that guy did it. Like, what? it's the hottest deal around, right? Uh, Kevin O'Leary's in. So, so you kind of think you're swimming safely with like other savvy investors. And that's what ultimately gets you to buy in. Bernie Madoff is very similar. I mean, he was, uh, you know, really well regarded in Wall Street. So when people invested with him, they didn't they knew the like returns were insane. But it wasn't like he was some random fly by night guy. He was well respected in the Wall Street space. People thought he might take over the SEC after like the current person had stepped down. They thought he was going to take it over. Wow. Like he's one of the leaders at the NASDAQ. I mean, he was one of the go-to guys. And so you thought, well, I invest with Bernie. Like I can't lose. It's like almost, you know, betting on the house. Like the house always wins, right? So when FTX was taking off, it just seemed like everyone who was a someone was backing him. So then it was okay. And then I think a lot of these people deferred to their other friends. They're all saying it's okay. Let me put money in. And it's just a huge case study that just because other people fall for something doesn't mean you're safe. Like you have to do, I hate to say do your own research because that's such <laughs> an overused like scammy <laughs> phrase. It's actually such like a phrase like that, you know, it, it's almost useless. Chemtrails. Let me, let me say this. If it's too good to be true, if they're offering market returns that you want to believe in, you go, man, I want to believe this is real. Don't invest. Like, that's a bad idea. People were calling bullshit, though. Just like they were calling... There, were, there was a few people that were yeah. wary that were calling bullshit on Bernie Madoff, and there was there was a few people that were standing out and saying, this. none of this makes sense. Right. And who were those people? 
So there were a few people. Um, there was a Matt Levine interview with uh, Sam Bankman Free. He didn't call him a fraud outright, but he's like, hey, it seems like you're in the Ponzi business and business is good. Whoa. And what did he say to that? He's like, well, you know, like think of it like a box. And, you know, you tell a bunch of investors, you know, hey, if you put money in this box, we can get some money out. We can give the, you this yield. He starts explaining like this thing that sounds exactly like a Ponzi scheme. And so ultimately, Matt Levine's like, uh, yeah, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. But again, it stops short of this is a fraud because, you know, no one knew. There's a bunch of backing. So I made a video at the time being like this crypto CEO just de describes a Ponzi scheme. And that video has aged so well because it's like people are like, oh, it was all true. Um, but like, but people were outright calling it a fraud. Like Mark Cahotis, he's a famous short seller. Um, he was calling that a fraud early. I have a buddy of mine. Um, he goes by Dirty Bubble Media on Twitter. He's like one of the anon Twitter accounts. He was calling it a fraud. You know, there were things that were coming out like questions about, you know, okay, they say they have all this money. Where? Where on chain is it? So like the blockchain, everything's publicly, you can see it, right? It's all at some address. And so people were asking like, where's, you say you have all this Bitcoin, where's the Bitcoin? You say you have all this Ethereum, where's the Ethereum? And why, are, why is so much of your balance sheet made up of your own tokens? It's a big question. So one of the things that FTX had done, and a lot of companies were doing at the time, but FTX was sort of the worst offender is Let's say I give you a like. Let's say I give you a loan, Joe. So an unsecured loan would be I give you a million dollars and I don't ask for anything. So if you default on that loan, I'm out of out a million. Another way is I ask for okay, I'll take some equity in the studio if something goes wrong, right? So I cover my butt if if you default on it. Now this is what was going on in crypto. They're called collateralized loans. But what FTX was doing was they were saying, hey, like we'll take a million dollars from you, but instead of giving you collateral, like dollars or like or like a, like some asset will give you FTT tokens which is their own invented coin and that should have value if anything goes wrong and people were accepting that as value but the problem is when at the exact moment FTX can't pay you back is the exact moment that FTT becomes worthless mm -hmm. so you think you have all this collateral you think you have this backstop because on the books it's worth you know x dollars let's say it's like worth five dollars a coin but what you're not realizing is the real risk is when FTX can't pay you back, they probably can't pay anyone back. Everyone loses confidence. Everyone sells their FTT tokens. No one wants to buy it. It's worth nothing. So how did this all fall apart? Great question. So it's really interesting because it was like a battle between FTX and one of their competitors, Binance. So uh, the, the owner of Binance is, I think it's Chengpeng Zhao. Uh, he goes by CZ on Twitter. I probably butchered his name. But... He was actually originally sort of an ally of Sam. So he invested in FTX early on, put $100 million in, and eventually got paid out like $2 billion. Whoa. Yeah. Some of it was in this FTT token, though. So they have a bunch of FTT, right? And so it's like November was when all this stuff went down. And a report comes out from Coindesk where it shows FTX's balance sheet. It shows actually what tokens they have. You know, for one of the first times, it was kind of really everyone got to look at it all at once in one place. And people noticed, like, wait a second. A lot of their assets are just their own tokens. Like they had a serum token, which they control most of, FTT. 
So it looks like if you just look at their assets, it looks like they're covering their liabilities. They owe customers $10 billion. Looks like they have $10 billion. But like most of this $10 billion is just their own tokens. So CZ takes this opportunity to kind of spread some, you know, sort of uh, information about that. He says, hey, we're actually going to sell most of our FTT that we got from that deal. And we're going to sell it. We don't know if we don't know what's going on there. And all of a sudden it starts this firestorm because people are like there was al- already all this worry in the past that summer. There had been a bunch of companies that collapsed and people had never thought FTX. It was kind of the first time anyone thought FTX could maybe not have the money. So CZ says, hey, maybe they don't have the money. I don't know. Whatever. I'm just going to sell some sell like two billion dollars worth. Or But he knew what he was doing. Oh, for sure. For he's sure. a shark. He's, right. a, he's a shark. He and knows what he's doing. What was the conflict between the two of them that led him to do that? The conflict was, it's a great question. The conflict was ultimately that uh, Sam was trying to get some regulations passed and he knew every, all the crypto people were trying to control regulations to favor their individual business situation. And so CZ felt like he was being cut out in Washington. And I think there was like a tweet from Sam saying like, oh, like I'll see you the next time you're in Washington or something like that. But like, it was kind of a dig because he knows CZ can't go to Washington. Like he's a, he would be, he'd be afraid of being indicted or I I don't really understand why he can't go, but he can't go to America. So Sam was meeting with regulators. CZ felt cut out. Like he was basically going to get a bad deal with regulators. They were all trying to, Sam was working really closely with regulators to try to get regulations passed. And CZ felt like he was cut out. So that stirred up this like battle between them. And ultimately, Sam goes, oh, you won like our battle. And people were like, you know, is it a battle when you lose billions of dollars of customer money? Like, well, how can you view this as a battle? Like, but he viewed it as like we're sparring partners, like, and you won this round or you won the war. Because he thinks this is going to go on forever. I, I initially he thought he was going to be able to figure out a way to pull all the the company's assets together and I think make everybody that. sound and repay everyone and go back to making money again. I don't think he thought he would repay everyone, but everyone thought like, oh, we'll just enter Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, we'll restructure the company, we'll reopen, we'll uh, we'll just turn all the debt into new FTT tokens and pay everybody out. Oh, that's what he thought. He's on amphetamines, right? So he can't be thinking totally clearly and probably overly confident. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear he didn't see like the full scope of the situation, especially at first. Um, it seemed like he thought, you know, he was like saying FTX US was fine. And then FTX US went bankrupt. And he's the one who put it into bankruptcy. And then he's telling everyone, oh, no, no, the money's actually still there. I mean, he was constantly giving a conflicting narrative of what's was going on. Now he's still like trying to say he did nothing wrong. Um, he he maintains he's innocent. And right now, actually, the big like kind of scandal now is they're finding a bunch of campaign finance violations because he was trying to influence politics, U.S. politics. I mean, it's it's insane how deep FTX's influence went from the Bahamas reaching into the United States while technically not really being regulated by the United States. Yeah, they were the number two donor to the Democratic Party. That's right, but... Also to the Republicans. This is what's wild. So Sam knew publicly in our current American climate, like, it's kind of like, okay, it's a little bit chic to be donating to Democrats. You can do that without too much, you know, negative press. But if I'm the number three donor to the Republican Party... 
that's going to be a bad look. So he decides to donate Dark to a Republican, like to Republicans. And part of the accusation is he knowingly did this through one of his uh, executives, Ryan Salami or something. I think that's his last name. Uh, Salami. I don't know. I just don't know how to pronounce it. But he was like, yeah, the number three donor to the Republican Party. But it was all orchestrated through Sam. Sam wanted to basically influence politics by just donating, donating, donating. And the idea is you donate to both sides, you can never lose, right? Yeah. If you have your your hands in both pockets. But publicly, he's just like he's donating to Democrats because he says, oh, I'm like this like you know, I care about all these issues, yeah. but it's like even more cynical than just buying one party is buying both lying about it so that you can get all the good press of like caring about all these social issues while also not caring at all. And ultimately, one of the ways like even some of the the candidates they donated to were through like a third employee we didn't even know about. And they were like donating through them for like all these um, LGBTQ plus uh, causes. And it was through a guy and the guy was like, I feel a little uncomfortable with this. And they said, well, we don't have anyone trustworthy at FTX. We can donate through who's gay. So like, can you, can you do this? <laughs> so someone had to be gay to do it? Like, no, they, no, basically they were like, we need someone trustworthy. We can trust to do this. So, Hey, you're going to be the guy. Like we, we're just going to do a few transactions through your name. That just came out in a press release. It's the new charges. He was basically like a, they call them straw donors. Cause it's like, if I give money to you to give money to a politician on my behalf, you're a straw donor. You're not really a donor. So Alameda was using customer funds to pay off politicians in order to try to get favorable regulation for, I guess, offshore crypto exchanges, right? And so these campaign finance, these these violations, like what exactly like what what's what are the regulations in terms of like what you're allowed to do and donate and how did he violate them? So I think I think the big violation was you're not supposed to like if you're Alameda Research and you're funneling money through a personal investor, that I think is the problem. They're actually campaign finance laws I've heard are pretty weak. I forget the name of the law. But it was passed in like the early 2000s, uh, 2010s maybe, where it actually became very easy to donate dark, where it's like you can donate through super PACs, political action committees, and you can donate as much as you want. And you don't have to be – your name has to appear nowhere. And so that's actually what he said in one of the interviews. He goes, no one believes me when I said I donated dark because no one believes anyone would be like – everyone wants the credit for donating. Mm. No one believes that I just do it on the sly. And that, that's ultimately what he was doing. But it also looks like he was donating through some of his executives. And I mean, the whole thing was shady all the way down. Like, I, So it, the person's not named in the report who was donating to um, Democrats. We know the one Republic, donating to Republicans was Ryan Salami. Um, but that person eventually said, well, hey, can we restructure all this money that went through me like a loan? So that we can, you know, say that I took a loan out and I was donating so we didn't violate any laws. They never ended up doing that. But like it was very clear the internal conversations were they knew they were committing fraud. They knew they were doing things wrong. And this idea was, well, no one's going to catch us. Right. Nobody's ultimately going to find out um, what we're doing here. How many more of these are out there in the world? As big as FTX. Uh, we don't know. I mean, there's only a few that are bigger, like there's Binance, very opaque, 
company. We don't exactly know. And what has happened to Binance since FTX went down? Because it seems like they received additional scrutiny, right? Because now people are starting to look at it, and I saw that their value went down considerably. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren uh, wrote a letter to them. They're they're being looked at much more closely. I mean, ultimately, all of these things are so opaque in the sense that you can know their assets. So it's like a big thing recently in crypto. They'll say, hey, we're going to show you proof of reserves. What does that mean? They mean we'll show you on-chain all our assets. You can check yourself. Like, I have a billion dollars in USDC. Well, that's great. But it doesn't matter if I have a billion dollars in crypto, Bitcoin, whatever, if I owe $2 billion. Right. That's what ultimately matters is mm. how much do you have on deposits that you owe out? And so with Binance, we don't really know. The only one we have a little bit more of a look into is Coinbase. It seems like they're, you know, legitimate. But um, oh, so much of the problem with crypto is we don't know how much of this stuff is money laundering. We don't know how much of this stuff is like outright the proceeds of criminals. I mean, we know that these criminals do launder their money through a lot of these crypto exchanges, uh, through mixers. It's just sort of this big mess right now. And we're waiting for regulators to figure it out. Finally, regulators have stepped on the scene. But, um, you know, right now it's just this kind of wild, wild west of you're just having to trust these shady offshore entities that they're telling the truth. Binance says they're fine. They show proof of reserves, but what are their liabilities? You know, it's hard to know. Um, so people really just take you at face value and they they have to trust that like, oh, other people are invested, so I guess I'll jump in too. And that's why the celebrities are important. And that's why- it's Huge part of the it. The connection to BlackRock is important. Huge part, yes. Because they're the legitimacy that says, hey, I'm- you know, I too am safe because Tom Brady's got his money there. So I can so, put my money So is there. The, the lure is like how Bitcoin used to be worth very little. And then one time it, it was with the high of Bitcoin, it was like 70,000 or something like 60 that. 60 plus. Yeah, yeah. So th that's the lure. The lure is you buy in for pennies and one day you're insanely rich. I'm sure you know about that one guy who lost a hard drive. And who's uh, paying people to go through a landfill yeah. to try to find his hard drive because there's billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin on that hard drive? Yeah, people lose people lose their crypto keys all the time. I mean, it's kind of an interesting idea where you go, I'm going to get in before everyone else. But a lot of people found out about crypto the same time the mainstream media, everyone else did. So by the time they're actually investing, it's too late. It's it's too late. Um, I think the like most fair case you could make about crypto is sometimes national currencies aren't a great idea and you want an alternative. So like, look at the Turkish lira, right? The inflation rate, I think, is like 75% or something like that. Like it's like, it's an unimaginable, it's just out of control inflation. And if you hold on to your Turkish lira, you're in for a bad time because every day it's getting less valuable. So the question is, what do you do if you're in that country making money? If you want to store your money somewhere else, how do you store it? Mm. So there's this idea of like these alternative currencies that are kind of interesting. Um, and then there's some arguments that like, hey, if you're someone like me, I have um, two employees and both of them are overseas. Like one of them's in London, one of them's in Ukraine. And so for me, I have to pay them and you know I have to do this wire transfer and it's kind of expensive. 
to do these, like you pay all these fees for wire transfers. So the idea is like, okay, well, if you have crypto, those wire fees can go down. And instead of taking, you know, maybe a day or something, it'll take like five minutes or three minutes. So, mm. so I don't want to give off the idea that like there's nothing here. But the problem is, is that with the lack of regulation and the ability to send peer to peer, which means like you and I can just send money to each other directly, no middleman. There's also a really huge opportunity for fraud, scams, and basically like, you know, shell shell games mm. where you're hiding the money. Yeah. You're saying, oh, invest in this. This is going to become valuable later. But you actually own a bunch of that token. Then you sell it off and then the pl price plummets. So you thought you had a bunch of money, but actually it's worth nothing. Like there's all these new scams that have emerged as a result of people getting interested in this idea of an alternative money system. Um, I mean- yeah, especially in our modern age, I mean, it seems like you can understand where they're coming from, the average person. They're like, look, I've been screwed by the banks. Every time the government's printing a bunch of money, where do I go, right? You can understand the appeal, but it's just like you went from the, you know, the arms of one huckster to another. Like, it's just mm. like, it's just like, it's almost to something worth worse. Um, there are reasons that our banks have a bunch of anti-money laundering laws. There's a reason that they have all sorts of finance laws. It's not for it's not for their safety, it's for your safety. I mean, it's like they need to, you know, fight like one of the best ways to fight crime is at their wallets, like, you know, like take away their banking. And uh crypto has just really revitalized that because, you know, now if you're if you're some criminal, laundering money has just never been easier. Mm. Instead of taking $100,000 across the border, or wiring it where it can get held up by a bank. Now I can just send you 100K. It's going to take me five minutes. So that's why when people like uh, kidnap people's data and th things along those lines, they they'd like to get paid through crypto. Ransomware. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 100%. Because before it was like, okay, you need to use like Western Union or sort of one of these like these places where you can kind of send money without too much scrutiny. But even Western Union has been kind of – they've been getting – kind of pinched a little bit like hey you guys got to stop allowing all of this but in crypto there's there because there's no middleman because there's no one who controls uh like bitcoin like no one can say like no to a transaction now it's like there's there's nothing to stop you from sending that money and then and then you can take that money and you can send it to what's called a mixer which is uh this like fancy language for for a way to like anonymize your transaction like you put it you put $100,000 into this little mixer, and then it sends $100,000 out later, and nobody knows where that money came from. What, what is a mixer? How does it work? It's interesting. So the most famous example is Tornado Cash. They've recently been uh, shut down. But the idea was- the, <laughs> Just the idea of putting your money into Tornado Cash. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> is there a better analogy for losing your house? It, you know what's funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, good Lord. The, the idea of these mixers was you'd anonymize your transactions. So like, uh, let's say I put like one, let's say I have Ethereum, one, uh, one Ether into this mixer, right? This pool of money. A bunch of people are putting one Ethereum into this thing. So mm -hmm. all this money's going in and then you basically wait. And as you're waiting, Ethereum's going out everywhere. A bunch of people are withdrawing, right? Because they're also taking their money out. Right. By the time you withdraw, there's nothing tying your Ethereum to your particular address to like this random external address because you, you send it to a different one. 
So before it's like, if I send you a dollar and then you send that dollar on, we can easily trace that back to me, right? It's like here, here. But if I send a dollar to you and everyone's sending you a dollar, and then you're sending a dollar to all these other wallets, that it's impossible to know which of those new wallets my dollar's from. <laughs> it's like, it's just crazy. It's a crazy idea that these uh, basically nerds in cryptography thought of, which is, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it, it is brilliant because it is basically, it's almost impossible to trace. But ultimately, the outcome of that is like, yeah, I encrypt all your data. Joe, send me. I know you're you're this successful podcaster. I want you to send me ten million dollars, or your data's lost forever. And you're like, call the call the police, and you go, hey, track this guy. And they're like, to what? Mm. To a Bitcoin wallet? To a yeah. Ethereum wallet? What what are we tracking here? And then it goes to some mixer somewhere. And then we don't know where it goes after that. So when Sam Bankman-Fried was working with regulators, when he was trying to impose regulations or encourage regulations, how could that have benefited him as opposed to Binance? Like what, what could they have possibly done to make it easier or more profitable for him? Mm -hmm. Like why would he do that? I'm not as familiar with the regulation side of things. People were talking about that a lot. Um, what I know is everyone's always interested in pulling up the ladder after them and like building the mm. kind of the rule book around like, hey, like if you're from this certain jurisdiction that we're a part of, you're fine. If you're not, like if you're from this one, you're not okay. Or I might say, hey, like CZ has connections to China. Like maybe that's a problem. Or CZ has a connections to here. Maybe that's a big deal. But I'm from the Bahamas and I'm American. So, so that might be fine. I mean, everyone's always interested in the regulations benefiting them. The, the challenge now, though, is, you know, a lot of people had backed that bill. And uh, now that it was all a fraud or the guy who basically pushed it was a fraud. Now they're like trying to retool it. And it's like sort of what's left after the guy who kind of was spearheading this bill, like was a fraud. It's, it's kind of tough. I, um, I was actually randomly like some Senator's office reached out to me and they're like, what do you think about this? And I was like, I don't know, man, you guys have to, this is, this is y'all's thing to figure out. Ultimately y'all have to, um, my feeling is offshore entities should not be they don't, they're not subject to our rules. How can you allow offshore like yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's very strange. And these offshore entities were also using like US branches. Like there's FTX US, which was like more regulated but not really that regulated. It's <laughs> it's a little it, it's a strange time, man, to be uh to be covering crypto because I tried to tell people for years that this scam problem, this fraud problem was going to undo sort of everything. Like if you don't root out the scams, you don't find ways to solve that, this is never gonna work because if you're great, the money system has to be safe. Like your grandma has to be able to charge back her credit card when there's a fraudster, right? Like, yeah. or, or this whole thing doesn't work. You can't rely on people being technically savvy in order to, uh, you know, make something work. If it's gonna go to the public, you have to solve all these issues. And unfortunately, we saw crypto kind of go mainstream before they had really taken that. I mean, maybe some of them were taking it seriously, but not enough. So if FTX didn't encourage regulation and CZ didn't get upset at that and sell off all his tokens, would they be 
still solvent today or still in operation today? Would they not crash no. or was this inevitable? It was inevitable. So something to understand. FTX was insolvent long before it was realized that they were insolvent. Mm. Right? So that's the issue was F FTX's problem was not CZ. Ultimately, he's kind of the guy who like pushed over the, you know, the house made on sticks or something. Like it was never the problem was the foundation was wrong from the beginning. If you don't have enough deposits to cover withdrawals, you just don't have the money, right? Your your issue is that anytime there's demand for withdrawals, you're going to encounter problems. So the it was going to be inevitable anytime any story broke that showed that maybe they're not as healthy as they should be. There would have been a run on the banks and people would have found out. It's just like, when are they going to find out? It's just he happened to be the final straw, if that makes sense. So someone would have figured it out and someone would have started dumping their coin. Yeah, people already were. I mean, even leading up, like CZ gets a lot of the credit for it. But like already, like a day before uh, myself, they kind of shut down. Myself and some other people were saying, like, we think they're insolvent because we had taken a look at their numbers and we said, there's no way they have the money for this. They don't have the tokens. So we were warning people, hey, this is probably insolvent. Get your money out. But CZ ultimately was the big like he was the most notorious and like a uh, well-respected person in the space to where people thought, OK, well, if he's saying it. You know, he's a guy who only says positive things about crypto because he's a crypto exe you know, executive. So if he's saying there might be problems, there's probably some problems. But Binance hasn't had similar problems. No, they've had a few runs and they've covered withdrawals. I mean, so it's just the, it's the problem is a lot of it's a black box. I mean, so it's like things you are good for now. Yeah. yeah. You don't know. That was the problem with uh, with the uh, FTX. Like they had hidden all their numbers like that Sam had literally had a $10 billion account that he mislabeled with Alameda Research. Mislabeled? Yeah, he said he called it Fiat at FTX. But it was a $10 billion oh, hole. What, is, what do you mean by mislabeled? Well, it was on a spreadsheet, Joe. So he, he was on a, put it on a spreadsheet for their balance sheet, and he mislabeled the account Fiat at FTX. And so what prosecutors are now arguing is he knew of course what it was he deliberately uh obscured what that was to hide it from people who were trying to take a look at his books but it's just that's what i mean by black box you never know what games these guys are playing like they say oh here's sort of like the rough estimate of our balances but oops did i tell you about this 10 billion dollar account like i forgot <laughs> it's so silly it's yeah you find out like there were just no adults in that room and like the few adults that there were were like, you know, they had like a criminal lawyer. Uh, well, anyway, I, I don't think he's actually been convicted of anything. I shouldn't say that. They had this guy, Dan shady. Friedberg. Shady, shady. This guy, Allegedly Dan, shady. Dan Friedberg. No, he's definitely shady. <laughs> I'll say that. This what, guy. What was his? I remember, but what was his? His, his whole thing was he, he did this thing with Ultimate Bet. So he was uh, one of the lawyers. So there's this poker site called Ultimate Bet. And he got caught in this scandal where they had enabled this thing called God Mode on Ultimate Bet, where the, C <laughs> the CEO could see everybody's hands and play on the site, seeing everybody's hands. So he just he cleaned up on all his own like his own uh, customers, just basically taking their money like, oh, I know exactly when to fold. I know exactly when to bet. So he had God Mode enabled and then they found out somebody found out about this God Mode. 
And so the lawyers like, how do we basically cover this up? Dan Friedberg's like, how do we, you know, uh, you know, what do you want me to do? And he's like, hey, just make this problem go away. This is the CEO. Like, go blame it on somebody else. Go blame it on some like, you know, third party that got access to our our website. Say it was like a glitch or something. And so that that is the experience of the lawyer that FTX then hires is like being complicit on a private call, leaked private call, trying to cover up this God mode scam. That is his background. And so I asked, you know, Sam, I was like, you know, what does it say if this is your chief regulatory officer? This guy who enabled God or who, who helped cover up God mode. And he's like, well, I don't want to comment on other you know, people or it's just like. Well, how does he skate on that? Like, how how does a guy like that not wind up getting indicted? I ask myself that every day. <laughs> so many. So is many it of a matter of time or is it? he's gotten away with it so many of these scams are like these issues of either regulators not having time not having the resources not having sort of like it's maybe not big enough um you know they're good people a lot of the people going after these guys but it's like it's like trying to catch everyone who's speeding you know what i mean right it's like people get away with it it's just there's too many people doing it and you'll catch some people but ultimately, a lot of people will just basically skate by, even though by all rights, they should have been, you know, caught. In my view, what he did was criminal. That's why I started. But it is it hasn't been prosecuted or anything like that. Um, but he's on a leaked private call. Everyone can go listen to it yourself. It's just this shocking thing. And, and I think that shows like if you're running a shady empire, like who's better than a shady lawyer to try to help you cover it up? Right. How did you get involved in what you do? It's a it's a weird thing. Um, so, so when did you start your YouTube channel? So I started it a few years ago, um, 2018, 2019. And what was the first video? I started as sort of like an interview show, nothing about scams. Um, I had a channel before it. I had, So I went to school for chemical engineering and hated it. I was miserable. I was like, I do not want my life to be earning 2% more of you know uh, of a bottom line for exxon mobil or, or any chemical i just wasn't interested i was like that's not my life so i always wanted to sort of um you know have a voice and so i started a youtube channel just doing random videos i, I hadn't really found my footing but throughout my entire life i had kind of had this relationship with like hucksters and fraud where you know when i was in high school my mom got thyroid cancer very treatable kind of cancer and she's fine but at the time I watched her as she's like, gets this diagnosis, gets swept up with all these hucksters who are telling her that the way to treat thyroid cancer is not surgery. You can just treat it naturally. Just don't worry about, hey, don't listen to the, you know, the doctors. Don't listen to your general practitioner. You can just treat it with like colloidal silver oh, or Jesus. with just just put a bunch of garlic cloves in the pot. I still remember her house like reeked. She would put 60 cloves of garlic in oh. like in a stew. And she would drink it up because she thought that would make her better. Ultimately, my dad uh, convinced her, like, you got to get the surgery. Like, this ain't this ain't going to fly. You have to, you know, ultimately get the surgery, uh, which thankfully she did. And she's fine now. She takes medication to replace the hormones her thyroid would generate. But I saw my mom kind of get swept in this thing that I knew was nonsense. But it's sort of like hard. You kind of have to disprove every single, like, there's always a new, like, health guy telling you that there's some new alternative discovery, whatever. And I was like, this is kind of weird. 
And I was like, why do they hate doctors so much? And it always seems to like end up with a sales pitch. Like it never was like, hey, let me just give you this free thing. It was like always like there's something, there's a catch. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really know what I was looking at at the time. Then I go to college and all my friends get an MLMs, multi-level marketing, you know, sort of like, mm -hmm. just like the, like, hey, you're going to get rich. So I was always getting invited to these like get rich seminars and, uh, and I'd go because it was like my friends like said, hey, we have to get somebody, you know, you want to go? And I was like, sure, I'll go. I was like kind of fascinated. And you'd see these guys, you know, they're like, hey, don't work a nine to five job, like be free like me. And I'm like, you're here on a Sunday at like 5 p.m. How free are you really? Like, you're just like, you're just kind of grifting here. And so, but I, but you'd see them in nice cars. And so I was like, what is, what am I looking at? And then as I'm doing my YouTube show, I'm like, I get fed a bunch of ads, like get rich quick schemes. Like you've got a bunch of people, you know, flexing in their Lamborghinis telling you, you know, they're like 25 years old telling you, you want to get rich by 25 or 22. I'll show you. I made a million dollars. I'm a millionaire by the time I'm 23 years old. Just buy my course. My course is, you know, $2,000. Pay me $2,000. I'll teach you to get rich quick. So I saw this and it all that my experiences up to that point, it kind of led me to like, I want to say something. Why is nobody saying anything? It just seemed like there was this, you know, these people pitching this stuff and nobody was talking about it. So I made this random video just basically screaming about, you know, all these scammers online. And unlike my previous work, which kind of had resonated, like it, it had gotten some reactions, but not much. What I noticed is the, it resonated with people beyond the views, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like I was just like, there was something different about the reaction to it. Like, and you know, victims would reach out to me. They'd be like, hey, I'd been scammed by this guy and I didn't realize what was going on. And you showed me, you know, sort of like how the whole uh, scheme worked. So I decided to start pursuing it step by step. And at first it was like just me discovering like, well, what is this? Well, how does this scheme work? Okay, so I buy this course and then what? What are you saying in the terms of service that means that I can't sue you? You have all these terms of service that basically say none of what I'm saying is true. Like they say they can get, get you rich in the sales pitch. And then in the terms of service, they said results may vary. What's that about? Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, it's like and so I realized like, oh, they, there's this sophisticated way that they're preying on my psychology and they're setting it up with like, I used to be broke like you. Well, that's a strategy. Mm. A lot of these guys were never broke, right? They, and they, it's just part of the story you have to tell to be really effective. It's like, I used to be just like you, Joe. But then, you know, I found out that doing Amazon dropshipping is the way to make millions of dollars. And, you know, I used to fail. But by these little tricks, I found out how to be successful. And if you invest with me, I'll save you time. You know, you could do it yourself, Joe. You could do it, but it, what? It's going to take you five years. Get with me, and I'm going to shortcut your success. Two months, you're going to be making five figures a month. Ten months, maybe six figures a month. And I've done it for people before. That's the social proof. I've shown people how to do this. You can watch them. Watch these are real. These are real people, Joe. You can you can do be just like them. And so I started watching this and I started like seeing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. I start covering it and then I start to get cease and desist letters. They don't like that. So they start to send me, they say, hey, you better shut up or we're going to sue you. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to stop making these videos. I just kept making the videos and uh, ultimately they never did. But but I start, I start doing that and after I get, cover Get Rich Quick Schemes for a while, I start hearing about these tokens and they're like, hey – selling courses 
like it's always the new grift. You always have to find because people figure it out. Like they go like, oh, that actually doesn't work. Like, hey, sell drop shipping is not actually like this incredible business that you thought it was that you're going to get rich easily. So don't do that. Go do crypto. You got to get into crypto now. And then it became NFTs for a while. But like, so I, so I started, I eventually like pivoted into this crypto direction and learned all about that. But it started just from a curiosity about scammers. And, and a, I wanted somebody to say something because I was just like, why, why does this make some people tens of millions of dollars and nothing happens? Why are some of these people making hundreds of millions of dollars? People are miserable at the end of it and nothing happens. And that, that was the start of my show. So you start just doing interviews about what? Like you, you just, you didn't start doing this. You started doing just like a normal interview show? I was just doing a normal interview show with a few of my buddies. Um, and it just was kind of, I, I was just trying to find my way. I was just trying to like, bef even before that I had done a show where I was like trying to break down these topics. I was like researching addiction and I was just like trying to, you know, make some digestible piece of media around like addiction, right? Because like I... I always was interested in communicating complicated ideas um, in a digestible way. I just felt like, man, there's so much cool science out there. There's so many cool ideas out there. How do we communicate this? So I did that for a while. Then I started like CoffeeZilla was like this spinoff channel. And I was like, let me do some interviews. And then it was also my place. I just threw things at the wall. So then I, that's where I threw one of my rant. Like I just like ranted about this thing against the wall and it kind of like stuck. And I just, I just enjoyed it. I was like, man screw these people, you know, like we're taking advantage of like, no. and what was sick about it is they're not taking advantage of rich people because rich people will sue you. Yeah. If you screw them over, rich people will sue you. Right. They're taking advantage of like people who they're like at $10,000 or $2,000. That's like all their disposable income. And they're betting on these hucksters to dig themselves out of these situations. And one of, that's one of the things I try to tell people is like a lot of the success of these things is not from... It's not even about greed. It's about desperation. Mm. When you fall for these things, a lot of times, you know, you're like my mom. Like the reason she fell for these things is she so badly didn't want surgery that she was willing to believe anything. Right. Because she's like, you know, if you tell me and I have cancer and you tell me I can be better and you tell me it's $10,000, you tell me it's a dollar, I'll pay you either way. Mm. Right. And so people are financially, they feel like they're terminally ill financially. They're just like, mm. I don't know how to get out of this. I feel like I have no opportunities. This guy, I'm watching YouTube. I'm trying to better myself. I'm trying to educate myself. And this guy comes on and tells me it's all a click away, right? It's all a credit card swipe away. <sighs> what has been the reaction? Like what has been the most uh, visceral or violent reaction to what you've, uh, you've done and exposed? I think the biggest story we probably ever broken was either the FTX stuff but that was already kind of going on it's probably the Logan Paul story mm. the crypto zoo saga um that was a case where you know it's just the classic influencer greed story where this guy launches an NFT project does millions upon millions of dollars in sales and delivers nothing he promises the world a fun blockchain game that earns you money and he he did nothing and the project was left abandoned and people were like miserable, complaining, complaining. No one says it, but I'm not they aware don't have of a that. voice. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of aware that you covered it, but I don't know the story. So the, let me let me back up then. So okay. uh, Logan Paul is popular influencer. You know who yeah, he I know is. Sure. Um, 
so he, along with a lot of influencers, got really interested in like the crypto space. And he had done a coin before that called Dink Doink, which was abandoned shortly after he promoted it. People got invested, goes to zero, right? And he says, well, that's not my project. That was my buddy's project. And then like a month later, he's like, I actually do have a project. Excited to announce it. It's called CryptoZoo. It's a fun game. They called it a fun game that earns you money. Basically, the idea is they're going to sell you these two things. Eggs is NFT. And then there's a coin aspect to it called Zoo Tokens. Okay. So you can buy these Zoo Tokens to buy the eggs. And the idea is the eggs will then hatch into animals that will earn passive Zoo Tokens. So you're... You can buy eggs with zoo tokens, and then the eggs will passively earn you zoo tokens. Does that make sense? No. Well, <laughs> don't worry. You're, you're kind of actually <laughs> caught up. Uh, so these zoo tokens <laughs> were basically this passive income. You know, you basically invest up front, and then you're sort of getting the tokens back out, which you can then sell, I guess. So that was the idea pitched to people, and people immediately buy in. They $3 million in NFT sales. Tens of millions of dollars in the tokens itself, the zoo tokens. People are so excited about it because it's Logan Paul. And he says this is his project. He's putting his name behind it, his backing behind it. And he's a great marketer. I mean, you got to give the guy credit where credit is due. He's a tremendous marketer. So people get all excited. All of a sudden, the, the hatch day comes when you're supposed to hatch these eggs. And half the hatching doesn't work. How does the hatching work? Is it on a computer model? It was like, on. What is it? It was on the blockchain. So you could like you your NFTs would turn into different NFTs. Like they would like they would transform into the animals. They go from an egg to an animal. How? Uh, it's just blockchain coding. I mean, it's just it's just. But how do they? Is it? Is it predetermined? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's how does your egg become an just, ostrich? It's just random. It's like it's supposed to be randomly generated uh, animals. So you and so you might get you a rhino. It, you you might, might get yeah, get and, a chicken exactly. And then you could like crossbreed your rhino with like a chicken and get what? like a a ricken or something and, <laughs> and get even more tokens. But uh, is this it? Yeah, the, there it is. You get like bear shark. Bear shark. <laughs> so Whale like panda. So people start bear to like. Gorilla. Is this still around? So they say they're going to go back and fix it now. So Logan, after being not involved for like a year, as soon as my video comes out, he goes. Damn, what a coincidence. Like, I've been working on it. Like, I was going to, you know, make it, like, launch it. In reality, he hadn't touched it for a very long period of time. But, so, so sorry, to back up. Okay. The, uh, half the token, half the eggs don't work, and they're not actually earning anything. The whole time they said they were going to earn you these tokens, right? They're not earning anything. So the promises haven't been fulfilled. There's just sort of all this stuff going on behind, and behind the scenes, Logan's quiet. Come to find out, he had hired basically criminals who were selling on the back end, like some of the tokens. And he was sort of like, I, I don't know what his, his thing was. I think he realized like, oh, it's not going to be that successful. Let me move on. I think his mentality was, let, let me just move on, right? The problem, though, is you have millions of dollars of investment in a thing that you promoted. You told everyone it was going to make them money, and then you never delivered anything. So my story was basically... Showing that, showing the victims of the scheme, and then response, he's like, well, I'm going to sue you for that. He said he's going to sue you. Yeah, he said, I'll see you in court. And then the backlash against him was so severe that he releases a video saying, thank you, CoffeeZilla, for showing the world what happened. 
and I appreciate it. I responded out of anger, but I'm going to make things right. I'm going to fix the game to what it was supposed to be, and I'm going to pay back $1.7 million. I'm committing $1.7 million to anyone who bought an NFT can get a refund. Now, there's a bit of an issue with that. So that's nice. I actually think it's great that that happened, but uh, there's two issues with it. Number one, which is that the NFTs were only half... Of, a small part of the sales. They actually weren't even half. They because people bought these tokens. So the people who bought tokens get nothing. He's offering, you know, this refund on the the NFTs. The other problem is he hasn't refunded the NFTs. I've been I've actually reached out to him twice. Uh it's been like over a month since he's done this. So he said he's going to do it and then the Discord like he's posting in this little chat room with the investors after he said he was going to do it, he's posted nothing. There's no way to get a refund right now. So I keep asking him like, "Hey, where's you promised 1.7 million to these investors. They're all waiting. Like it's been over, uh, I think it's almost been two months now and there's nothing. So it's like, you know, he says that he's refunding people, which sounds great for PR. And then it's just like radio silence. So what I'm ultimately looking for is some accountability from these guys. They're happy to make money from the endeavors. They're happy to potentially make millions of dollars from these uh, you know, different projects they're spinning up. But the second accountability is asked for, you can't reach them. So is it possible, I would assume Logan's a very busy guy. And sure. I would assume that he probably didn't come up with this on his own. I would assume that someone probably came to him with this project. This is just total assumption, guesswork, guessing on my part. So we have text messages for behind the scenes. A lot of people... The people who were responsible for it say Logan kind of spearheaded the idea. And he says he spearheaded the idea. So it was his idea. Yeah. And that, and so he's working with someone, right, that probably assured him that this would work? Uh yeah. I mean he had a he had this team of a few guys who they didn't do much vetting into, and some of them turned out to be criminals. But you know, my my feeling is ultimately no matter what happens, like when you take people's money, that's what I'm trying to like on my show, I'm trying to tell these like influencers, like when you take people's money, it's different. When you tell them you're gonna make them money and you get into the financial investment game, your responsibility is different. You can't just always pass the buck to like, oh, it was like a guy that's not that trustworthy. It's like, all right, that might be true, then go fix it. Go hire some more guys that are trustworthy and fix the thing. And I think, um, my experience, because I've, I've talked to Logan, and, and that's why I know he didn't respond to me, because I, I texted him. I said, hey, where's this money? He left me on red. Uh, but I've talked to him, and when I talk to him, you know, there's just sort of this feeling of he's like, I just don't want to think about this. Like, it's, I don't want to be, you know, he wants to focus on prime, which is successful. He doesn't want to be bothered with the victims of the scheme that he ultimately thought of in the first place. So it's still po is it possible that he's just gathering the money or working out a way to do it legally where it it makes sense? It's it's very frustrating because you know at at every turn it's just sort of like uh, you know it's it, it is I want to say it's possible we we just don't know and it's just sort of like when you promise people re refunds like the longer you wait you know the less people are actually going to take that refund. If Walmart says, hey, bring in bring in this skull, I'll give you a refund. And you're like, all right, when can I bring it in? And they don't respond to you for two months. They yeah. know that you're less likely to actually take the refund. 
So I don't know if he's doing it because he wants less people to get the refund. I, it, he probably is busy. But my thought is a transgression of this magnitude where you're playing with people's money and livelihoods, you cannot take it lightly. And that's one of the things is these influencers got into this crypto space. I don't think they fully appreciated they're now dealing with financial investments. And it's not a joke. It's not like a brand deal where, you know, if uh, NordVPN isn't as great as the, they said it was, you know, it's all cool. Right. It's now, it's your company and you promise people you're going to make the money. And now you haven't said anything for over a year. Then you say you're going to refund them and you don't say anything for two months. Like that's, a, that's an issue. The whole crypto space and the whole NFT space is filled with weirdos. Like everyone that I've talked to that wants to come to me with some idea, it's always very strange. Like when when people have come to, you know, like my business manager with financial propositions, they're always, it's logical. Like it makes sense. Oh, invest in this. This is a fund and it does this and this is how you get a return on your investment. None of that stuff ever made any sense to me. The, I, I avoided all of it, luckily. But I was propositioned by multiple different entities about these kind of things. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know, like, why would anybody buy an NFT? Like, you know, oh, it's a non-fungible token. And then you put it in a NFT wallet and you have this thing. I'm like, but I have the same thing on my phone. I could take a screenshot of that NFT and I have it. Like, what is the thing, the physical thing? You know, it's like, I understand, like, uh, Beeple. Do you know who Beeple is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Beeple made that little Giga Chad thing for us. It's a piece of digital artwork. Yeah. And, you know, he has an actual museum of digital art. Right. And if you buy a piece from him, you actually get a physical piece of digital mm -hmm. art. There's something there. Yeah. I get it. Makes sense. I Like the the Ape, Ape Yacht Club, whatever the fuck that is. Like, what's going on here? Like, I don't... I have a, a friend of mine who's an artist who made over a million dollars on NFTs. And I'm like, what did you do? And like, he talks to me for 10 minutes and I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck you just said. Yep. So let me start by saying, so uh, I work with a super talented digital artist. So he does a lot of my set stuff. So I have a lot of respect for, you know, the challenge of a lot of digital artists as opposed to physical artists is like, if you're a painter, you sell your paintings. Right. If you're a digital artist, how do you you yes. print it out? Like, what do, what do you do? So NFTs were sort of originally it was like this is for artists. Like this is a way for a digital artist now to legitimately sell scarcity in their work, which previously they had no way of doing. You still can take a screenshot, but you don't own the NFT that like sort of the digital artist has sort of provisioned like this is the thing that matters. So I have a lot of like in that way. In that one way, I, I like I get it. I get why people wanted it to be, you know, to become the next big thing. The problem is, is it was quickly taken over as an investment vehicle. Now it's like everybody's an art dealer, and now everybody's an art Ooh. expert, and and now we're trying to make a buck, right? And that anytime you get art involved with money, things get weird. But especially when you get art involved with quick flips and returns, and now we're gonna ma all make money from this. That's when things get really weird. So like. I feel bad sort of for digital artists, legitimate digital artists who really do legitimate 
NFT work. I don't think there's anything wrong with selling your work as a digital artist. Like, what do you expect them to do? Not everybody can go work for like some random YouTuber. Like, you, you know, people have to earn a living. They do legitimate work and good work. But the problem is when greed gets involved, when people get involved basically promising you know, money. In the case of the Board Ape Yacht Club, it's sort of like what they their idea was, we'll start like almost like a country club where the NFT is the pass for the country club. And like you can go chat with the like holders of this Board Ape Yacht Club. And I guess the idea is like because it's expensive, then you get in the room with, you know, people with money. Um, but I found that whole thing weird because of the like you know, Jimmy Fallon's getting involved and like, and then all these like mainstream celebrities, you know, start promoting this thing. And it's like, this is a little, why is everyone doing it? And then you come to find out that a lot of them had their board apes bought by this company called MoonPay, who is trying to like, you know, use the celebrity's likeness to push that out. And it's just like, this is a strange, what, what's actually going on here? Is it just about the art? It doesn't actually appear to be. <sighs> I just don't understand how it worked. I don't understand how anybody looked at it and went, this is logical, I'm gonna buy that. So think about it, so think about it this way though. So I'm sure you've, you've played a bunch of games, video games, right? Have you ever played a video game where like they have like in-game you know, skins and like different like outfits? Sure. And, so people, so tons of businesses have been built, like the entire free-to-play model of Fortnite, you know, Fortnite makes millions and millions and millions of dollars. Their whole model is built on skins and like mm -hmm. different like in-game purchasable items. Right. You don't actually own anything. It ultimately, it just lives and dies with your computer. NFTs are sort of like, I guess the idea with NFT gaming or whatever is like, well, you would actually own, own it. Like the, the game couldn't take it away from you. You'd have mm. some piece of art that you'd have some ownership of that would matter. Um, again, I think the challenge is, is just like, where greed and like marketers get involved, they just sort of like ruin everything with scams and fraud to where it's very tempting and I get the temptation to just throw everything out and go, it's all just a fraud, right? Because you see so much of it and so much of it is just like kind of people trying to scam you basically for, you know, and use especially celebrity likenesses to scam people. Mm. Yeah, the celebrity part is a big key in all this, right? It's a, I mean, it's a huge part. It, this is how we get legitimacy for products now. It's like sort of like endorsements. Endorsements. It's like yeah. you got to find a guy to do it. Uh, so ultimately, like, and the AI stuff's scary because ultimately you'll get the AI deep faking you into, you know. Yeah, there's one of me. There's one of me and Andrew Huberman selling some supplement that's not real. Right. <laughs> yeah. Alpha, alpha. I don't know if the supplement's real, but I yeah. know that the commercial's certainly not real. Yeah. They, they deep faked you. And it, I think it went viral on Twitter for a bit. I, yeah. I well, saw everybody it. knew it was a deep fake, luckily. And it wasn't quite good enough. Yeah. And then, you know, we tried to figure out who's doing it, and you just run into a bunch of shells. It's like very difficult. I'll to tell you out. offline who's doing it. I okay. Know, I know. <laughs> I looked into it because I was oh, curious. Okay. I was curious. And, uh, you know, that same person had put out a lot of ads about, like, Kim Kardashian. Had, they had deep fake mm. of Kim. They had a deep fake of... Uh, they had one of you saying that, like... So they have one of you saying, like, this product's great. You know, go buy it. And then there's another one where you were complaining that Andrew Tate launched it. And you thought you were sort of like, Andrew Tate's going after my brand. <laughs> like, 
because it's very similarly named to one of your products. And so it's like, it was kind of this hilarious thing where they were playing both sides. It's like, it's Joe Rogan's. Wow. It's also Joe Rogan hate, like, hates that it's out there because it's so good. Then it's like Kim Kardashian loves it. They had every celebrity was like basically endorsing this thing all through AI. And it's just the testament of our times. Like celebrities are the new sort of authorities for better and often for worse. Um, but like, but people use that as currency now. And like with AI, you can just like fake a lot of that stuff. Um, well, that's what I'm worried about is the volley. I, th I feel like this is the very first volley in a yeah. war on reality in that the way AI is structured, it's so, it's so prevalent. And so like when you look at chat GPI and then you look at deep fakes and you look at the ability to take, I mean, there's a whole podcast of me interviewing Steve Jobs that doesn't, it's not real. And it sounds like a real podcast. I, <laughs> There's there's a lot of podcasts of you. Yeah, I've heard, it's crazy. I, I, sometimes sometimes I'll, I'll I'll check one and I'll go. Is this real? I saw uh, there's a bunch going around now. They can imitate anyone's voice. Like they don't. Yeah. I think you were probably one of the first because you have so many hours of footage. So they had a lot of training data. Yeah, there was a can Canadian company that showed like sort of proof of concept of this a few years back, and I yeah. was like, oh boy, I know where this is going to lead because they just took all the hours of footage so they yep. basically have me at every pitch and tone and yelling and laughing and they can have me say anything at this point L literally and now they're getting really good at the inflection because one of the problems with these ai tools was they were very monotone and they can only yes. imitate your voice in a mono but now they're getting better at like okay we'll accent the voice and then we'll talk calmly and then we'll be able to you know get more excited yeah um so that's a huge problem. Have you seen the face ones though? That's yes. the new one. Can, Jamie, can you pull up the um, the uh, the new TikTok face filters? Have you seen this? Which face filters? The new. Which one in particular? I think it's like their glam one. There's a bunch of Twitter Ooh. threads right now okay, on it. I've it's, seen the glam one, so it's oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. It's amazing how they can put makeup you look, on you. you and look, you, no, no, you look yeah. different. Yeah, like, you look different. Yeah. It's it's literally going to be this new world where you won't know, like, catfishing is going to a new level. Yeah, you'll have no idea what someone <laughs> looks like. There's a woman who did this ad, and she was uh, laying in bed. She's like, I don't have any makeup on. And in the old ones, like, there's a really funny video of this... Uh, person that I know actually who put this filter on and in one of the scenes she puts her hand in front of her face and the lips are superimposed yeah, yeah. on her hand and it looks so preposterous and the fact that she's so not aware of the fact that this thing is happening and she put the video out it's like we were laughing so hard like first of all you don't look like that everyone knows you don't look like that and then when you put your hand in front of your face you didn't see this fucking giant cartoonish fake lips that yeah. were, came ab ab over your palm this is so crazy so this is the one that i saw yeah this one's fake this though, woman but... like this is crazy yeah this now, woman now if you like... touch yeah well now if you touch your face you should be able to they they don't uh like superimpose any like it's all right. really real like you can do anything to your face and you can manipulate it and the ai tracks it all i mean and i've seen people do it where they have two screens like one that's actually them and one that's them with the filter so you see it side by side and it's shocking yeah it's it's really worrying like you know these technologies part of the problem is you could deploy them so cheaply and at scale to where you know, in my world, I'm more worried about like the Joe Rogan deep fakes and like and like people scamming people out of money. But I also worry about like the romance scammers. Yeah, like how good that's going to get. Oh, when yeah. ChatGPT now has all the scripts down, and instead of paying someone to get it, you have someone FaceTime this person. 
Oh, yeah. You have someone FaceTime yeah. them. You have it all generated by an AI. It costs you almost nothing yeah. to do. I mean, one of the rise of like robocalls was it's just cheaper. Like it's right. really hard if you're going to hire people to do it. You kind of need an ROI. If you have robots, you know, sending spam, now it's now it's good because you don't actually need to earn that many dollars per call to make it viable. So you just call everybody. One of my daughters got a phone call about how much money she owes and then if she doesn't pay this amount right away that the authorities will be in contact with her and you know she was 10 and she was laughing and she's like what is this am i in trouble <laughs> she she plays it for me i'm like oh my god this is hilarious but it's just when you take really lonely sad people like i remember watching this um television show once it was some expose on this poor man he was just like this old divorcee who was being scammed by someone and I don't even think he had like a voice conversation with this person but he traveled to the UK or somewhere somewhere in Europe twice mm -hmm. to meet with this person that he had been sending all this money to and both times something came up and the person couldn't meet him there oh yeah, yeah. this poor old guy just kept going there thinking that the love of his life was there and they interviewed his daughter and she was you know beside herself and she couldn't talk sense into him and they interviewed him and he was in denial and it was just so pathetic and sad. And what is that going to be like now with this kind of shit? It's going to be a lot more prevalent and it's going to get a lot better. I mean, the the rise of the ability to generate like a realistic companion avatar is going to be, I mean, it's massive. Mm. You know, these people were complaining to me the other day about this other thing, which you're going to find as well. So <laughs> there's this app where you can basically have a girlfriend who's an AI where like the AI you'll like like basically you know it's a fake like you know it's all AI but it's like a companion chat bot and you know I get a lot of emails like oh such and such is a scam and usually it's like some Ponzi scheme or some get rich quick scheme this one they were furious because the creators had sold it like hey you can have hot role play with this AI bot and then the a the the people developing in the app one day said, hey, we're turning that off. But the reaction from the community was like, you took away my girlfriend. Oh, Jesus Like, you Christ. took away my, like, you, like, my partner. And these people had legitimately bonded with a bot. What well, is that? Well, that's the Joaquin Phoenix movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is it? She? Her? Her, 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 her. her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really the premise of the movie but in the movie it was all just voice yeah now it's going to be some actual 3d person is this one that's okay, it's so, replicate so that's AI. like still the uncanny valley right you look at that and you'd have to have like really bad eyesight to think that's a real person ai shuts down erotic role play community shares suicide <laughs> prevention resources over loss oh my goodness People were like miserable. They're like, Ugh. they're like, it's talking. So, and they would like complain, like after an update, they'd be like, cause I looked through their Reddit. I was like, so curious. It's like, this is, this is like a new brave new world, you know? <sighs> but, um, they would, they would say, you know, ever since the new update, she's just not the same. She's like Ugh. talking to someone different. And it's like, you know, the back end is just like a large language model. And they just clicked an update. They don't care as long as they're getting this feeling. Right. You know, this is, it's really scary stuff because uh, I read this uh, statistic recently that said that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 plus percent of women are single, but it's in the neighborhood of 60% of men. Really? 
Yeah. That See if seems you can find. really high. I know. In it what does age seem group? really high. It's, uh, you know, 18 to 49 or something oh, like wow. that. Oh, wow. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's young it's, men. It's a shockingly high... It doesn't high... make sense, like, why there is such a disparity between the genders, that men are so much more single than women. Like, that doesn't even jive. Yeah, how does that... How does and, that like, how, make sense? Most men are single. Most young women are not. Maybe the guys so, are just saying they're single, and all the girls be. are like, we're in a relationship. It is just a research, right? So it's just a, a survey, I would imagine. 30% of U.S. adults are neither married, living with a partner, nor engaged in a committed relationship. Nearly half of all young adults are single. 34% of women and a whopping 63% of men. Like, wow. how does that work? How does it work if there's roughly 50% women, 50% men? How could 34% of women be single and 63% of men be single. It says, not surprisingly, the decline in relationships matches a stride with the decline in sex. The share of sexually active Americans stands at a 30-year low. Around 30% of young men reported in 2019 that they had no sex in the past year, compared to about 20% of young women. Only half of single men are actively seeking relationships or even casual dates, according to Pew. That figure is declining. What if, like, the women thought they were in a relationship and the guys were like, Right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what, what we could say. Single, what you're about. Yeah, that you could say that. Or maybe the women aren't being honest. Maybe they've gone on a date with a guy and they decide that's their boyfriend. I don't know. I think the more shocking thing is just that more in general are single, less people are having sex and are engaged in meaningful yeah. long-term relationships. I think that's, you know, there's, there's just an increasingly... I feel like we're becoming more atomized, like you just kind of can get lost in your world and you get these pseudo communities popping up. Like if I'm a board Ape Yacht Club member, I could call, you know, I might say those guys are my brothers. But but are they are they really like what is what are what are these new commun internet communities doing right? And what are they not really replacing in the real world? Because basically what that's what we've done. We've replaced a lot of physical things with online things and sometimes that replacement works like i can you know i can kind of but it, sometimes it doesn't like i can like facetime with my mom and it's like kind of the same but it's not it's not really it's a little annoying it's a little annoying right and they're getting yeah. better at it but it's like it's always kind of like this like facsimile of the real thing and so I think this replica AI is like it's sort of this like it's trying to treat loneliness in people. Yeah. Maybe you could in that that's the nice way of looking at it. Um, but it's kind of, it's pretty dystopian, man. It is dystopian, and one of the things that I think uh, accelerated it was the lockdowns, right? So for especially people that had a lot of anxiety, there was people that went a year plus without being in contact with other people other than their immediate family members. And so then they seek more time online. They're on t online more. And at the same time, this AI-generated 3D image of a person is communicating with you. Just that and then and then the rise of like like parasocial relationships, you know, that people watch. Home. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. People watch so much of online people, they think they know you and like and they don't. Mm. But but they feel like you're their friend rather than ha them having like online relate i was i was hanging out with a few friends um and you know they got approached by some people and these guys like felt like they knew them like they're like oh we know you like
like, I love all your stuff. Mm. That I, what do you think about? They're asking about one of their friends. Like, what do you think about when this guy did that? And I'm thinking, like, this guy doesn't know you. Like, right. It's, but it's this strange thing where that's our that's our new world. It's different from, like, when there were celebrities. You didn't feel like you knew Tom Cruise. Right. Well, that's different, too, because he didn't really talk. He only talked on screen. He's playing a character. Yeah, and when he did talk... It was disastrous. Like, remember when he had that interview with Matt Lauer and he was getting upset at uh, Brooke Shields, who was taking, you know, psychiatric medications and he's a Scientologist and they believe those are the devil. And so he was telling him, you're being glib, Matt, you're being glib. And everybody was like, oh, my God, this guy's a psycho. You remember those? I, I, I ever since I watched Top Gun, I forgot. That was he's, disastrous to him. He said but ultimately. He, he wrote it out He's with Top kind of Gun. Proven correct in a lot of ways because it turns out that the the model of why they were using these SSRIs is not correct. Like they work, but they're not sure why they work. And the the initial thought was that they were addressing some sort of a chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm -hmm. And now that's been proven to not be correct. How do you think we go about? So, it's sort of like managing these two things, right? Like you manage the fact that pharmaceutical companies have profit incentives that leads them to want people to be on, you know, long-term drugs for, you know, ever. That's the best kind of drugs, one you never get off of. Right. With the fact that like, on the other hand, you have a lot of like alternative health guys saying, hey, that's nonsense to listen to the guys. They're also kind of a lot of them pushing a bunch of pseudoscientific yes. like, wackiness. So... It's very hard to figure out what's right and what's wrong and what's correct and what's propaganda. Yeah, because you go very like hard. you go like oh like oh Tom has a point about these like all these like uh, you know these pills and but it's like okay then is the answer is the answer nothing like it's well, just hard to know. It's, it's interesting, right? Because like the the question is like illness, right? There are certain medications like insulin for people that are diabetic. Th right. These are like actual real solutions to an actual medical problem that's being created by a pharmaceutical company that addresses real issues and helps people. Right. And then there's also stuff like, hey, uh, you know, maybe you need Adderall. Maybe you need to focus. And so they're giving you speed, right? And so you, it's basically, it's not based on a disease like I can't go to a doctor and the doctor says, hey, you have herpes, you need herpes medication. And then this fixes your disease. It's, I don't feel good. Give me something that makes me feel good. And then they give you something that makes you feel good. And you're like, okay, I'm on medicine because I have an illness. Like, is that really what's going on? Well, what else, what else is causing that illness? Do you exercise? Yeah. Do you sleep right? Are you depressed because you have no meaningful relationships? Are you depressed because you have a job that's horrific and stressful? Like, what is causing this that you're just putting a Band-Aid over? And that, there's, so there's confounding issues that are all souped in together and no one's the same that's the thing it's yeah. like how much of it is environmental factors like i can speak personally i have developed some like low-grade form of adhd but not because i mean though? what does it mean meaning okay so like in the past i i could read books for hours and hours on end right like i love i loved reading books due to how much i engage with social media and I'm someone who tries to monitor this stuff. I was on a flip phone last year for like six months out of the year. I mean, like I try to limit this stuff. But because so much of my job is on social media and Twitter and I'm scrolling and the scroll is so addictive because mm. you context, 
context switch so much so fast yeah. that it's like my brain when I try to lock into a book it's like it takes me a bit and I'm somebody who likes to read a lot I'd, I'd say I was like a voracious reader especially as a kid and like as I get older I'm having to sit down and it's more like work I like I have to intentionally like okay I gotta read this book yeah. I'm not gonna cut myself from distractions and I have all these apps on my phone to try to limit the amount of like screen time that I have because I'm just a, I know this is bad for my brain so I've given so I don't know for me I'm like Adderall is not a good solution for me because my problem is not that I was born with this issue. My problem is I, I'm on my device and my device is literally overstimulating my brain to when I don't have that overstimulation. I'm just sitting in a quiet room with a book. Now my brain's like, well, where is it? Where's the, where's the you know, interaction? So for me, I think the answer is, okay, for me, I just have to unplug more, right? And that's what I try to do. But for somebody who says I was born like this I can never pay attention like is the answer you know some people say Adderall helps them what do you say to those people so it like that's what I mean it's like it Adderall seems definitely like environmental yeah well I think a you're addicted to your phone for sure yeah most people most are. people are yeah I am very fortunate that I'm not addicted to social media I'm addicted to watching YouTube videos, which is a totally different animal. Yeah. And I'm also addicted to watching YouTube videos on things that I enjoy, which is better. So I've, I've filled that gap with things like I watch uh, um, like fight videos and professional pool matches. It stimulates me in a way, but I'm not engaging with this context switching constantly, like scrolling on Twitter. I go to Twitter maybe five, ten minutes a day. I go and I see what the fuck's going on. Yeah. Like, what is everybody mad at? Like, uh, who's in trouble? Like, I, I'll, I'll shit scroll. It's such a funny way to describe Twitter. It's so yeah. accurate, too. But yeah, I yeah. do not post. Right. If I post, I post and ghost. I just post and I leave it alone. I don't read the comments ever. Mm -hmm. I don't read any of my comments. And I, think I think that's great. That is very important for famous people. It's very, very important because I have friends that yep. don't. And they'll come to me and you know what they're saying? I go, how do you know what they're saying? Like, what do you give a shit? I watch people ruin their lives yes. by looking looking at these, yes. like, their screens. No, it's it's kind of hard because when you first, when you first, like, kind of come on the scene, you get a little attention. It's, like, intoxicating. You're and like, you want to engage, too. Yeah, because it's, like, at these first, that's, the, yeah. that's fun. And it's, like, when you have a thousand people watching you, like, that's, like, beautiful. Yes. It's, like, there's this community. They're resonating. You have time to kind of, you can respond to people, in, like, intelligently. When you start to get into the millions, it, it it's just ludicrous. It just doesn't make sense anymore. And it starts to be this like your audience starts to become to you more. It feels more like a hive mind, even though it still is individuals. It feels more like, OK, how do I get a pulse of what this actually is? This is why people gravitate towards negative comments when they have huge audiences is because they go like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe that like one guy represents the whole. Mm -hmm. and it, of course it doesn't, but it's like they're worried because they don't really know what their audience thinks because it's so many people. So I know it's the right thing to do to unplug. At the same time, I'm like, okay, I have to know the current events. I have to know what's going on. So like I that's one of the worst parts about I love what I do, but it is the worst part of my job that I feel to some extent I kind of have to have my finger a bit on the pulse mm -hmm. to know who's into what, what's big. But then – after that, the discipline is like unplugging. What I have found is that if something is big enough that I need to pay attention, I'll find it. 
I find it through other methods. I find it through friends. I, feel like I have so many friends like, do you know about this? Do you know about that? Like, even sometimes when people are mad at me, like, did you, like, what's going on with you and that person? I go, what are you talking about? Huh? I literally don't yeah. know. And yeah. then they'll tell me, I, go, I don't want to look at that. Like, leave it alone. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't give a fuck. But you'll find out. You'll find out because people are talking about it. You'll right. find out. Like, let the addicts scroll. Let them go crazy. But for your own mental health, it's not. And anybody who's public, like you're a public person, you engage publicly. You yeah. put your videos out, and you and people comment on them, and your videos get millions of views. Like that is not a, an environment where you can he healthily sample people's opinions. It's just not possible. And human beings are designed to look for threats. You're not des you're designed yeah. to find problems. And so if there's one person that thinks you're a piece of shit and a hundred of them love you, that one person is the one you're going to think about. And you're going to go, oh. And they're confirming your they're worst right. fear. Yes, like, yes. Your worst imposter syndrome. Yes. They're like, you are, you are crap. And you go, yes. oh man, I knew it. <laughs> Uh, but even for people that are just regular people engaging, like uh, imagine people aren't talking about you because you're anonymous, but you're engaging in this very shallow form of communication that's not natural. You're engaging in a text-based communication with someone. You don't know who they are. You don't have any background on them. You don't know if they're fucking schizophrenic. You have no idea. And yet you are investing your mind and your focus on these interactions that you're having with this person. And most likely, if you're in a dispute, you're trying to win this dispute. Yeah. So you're trying to find reasons why they're wrong, and you're getting anxiety, and you're involved in this little sort of debate slash mental battle. It's like, fucking go outside. Go do something with your life. Like, social media is fucking dangerous. But it's not dangerous if you understand it. It's like if you have a, a cabinet filled with cookies and chips, it doesn't mean you're going to get fat. You can always go into that cabinet every now and again and have a cookie and you're going to be fine. Yeah. But if you just fucking open that cabinet every day and stuff your face, you're going to get diabetes. And yeah, and what's hard is these these apps are built to be sweeter and sweeter sure. and more fattening, more fattening every year. Well, look at TikTok. Like, that's the best one. That's the... And that's where that's where I finally drew the line where I always try to stay up to date on all the apps, you know. And I have a, a, a family member who's young who like told me about TikTok, and they're like, "You gotta get on this." It was like back in like 2019, and they of course were right. I should have. I would no, no, no. But at the time, I just said like, "This is a step too far." Yeah. The 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 shortening of our attention spans. YouTube used to be short form. That's like the funny thing. Is like then it was like. TikTok and well, Vine, it started with Vine, but it's just like this new idea that like, hey, forget about ten minutes. Let's talk, try ten seconds yeah. for a video, and that's where I have successfully disengaged. I, I don't watch any TikTok or short form like because it that would be the end of my attention span. And I feel bad for like, what do teachers do now when you're competing with like this never ending feed of the most entertaining? Well, the kids aren't supposed to have their phones in classes. I have young kids, um, but. A lot of them sneak it and they figure out a way to juke the system. But it's just it's an inevitable fact of the progression of technology and technological innovation. They're going to figure out a way to get people more engaged because it's profitable. And there's 
going to be a better app than TikTok in the future, a more addictive, more engaging app. You have to imagine, right? You ha- It's so funny to imagine now because you're just like, how could you? But then we were thinking the same thing about YouTube. You're like, wow, this yeah. is great. Like, this is so, you can find anything, anywhere. And now YouTube is like, oh, they're the, they're like the responsible, you yeah. know, like educational company. I mean, you can YouTube, learn a lot you on can YouTube. Le- oh, I've learned so much on YouTube. I love it. Um, it is, it is kind of an incredible platform, and, and it is important to remember with all these new technologies, like there are good things, but oftentimes the people who are creating the platforms don't really tell you about the bad things. They, they're incentivized That's to down, down. Exactly. Their job is just to make something awesome. It's your job to figure out your own life. Yeah. But it's, you know, the, the problem with things like TikTok and YouTube and Twitter and I mean, this is what we're finding out with the Twitter files, is that then other entities get involved in the process of censoring certain information and promoting a specific narrative. And then when you find out the government's actually involved in that, like, well, that gets really shady. Like, we, we, we need some sort of regulations and or laws to stop that from happening. Or you need someone like Elon Musk that comes along and actually fact checks the president. You know, when they started fact-checking the White House, you know, like, actually, that's not true at all, and that's not what, why there's inflation. That's not, You didn't do that. And it's amazing to see the White House delete tweets out of shame. But that's the world we're living in now. But that's not the case with YouTube. And with YouTube, there was some real problems, especially during the pandemic, with the censorship of accurate information that didn't fit a very specific narrative that they were trying to promote because of their sponsors. How do, you, how do you regulate that when one of the challenges is that the rate, and I know this firsthand, the regulators are so out of touch right. with the technology because technology moves so fast that these guys, they were, a lot of these regulators were around when it was dial up internet and now they're in po- positions of power being asked to regulate things when they checked out you know, with email. Yeah. 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 Well, you saw that when um, people were interviewing uh, Mark Zuckerberg and they were talking. They don't know to, what they're talking they're about. They're literally talking to him about problems with Google. Yeah. And he's like, hey, I'm Facebook. And they're like, uh, fuck are you talking about? Yeah. You know? that, that is one of the bizarre things. And so you rely, weirdly enough, on people to inform the politicians. Well, who informs them? Lobbyists. Right. And then you go back to people like Sam Bankman Fried, where it's like, He's informing them with money, yes. and he's like, hey, let me get a meeting with you. So he gets a meeting, and now he's a favorite on on the Hill because he seems like he's the responsible one in the room, and it turns out he's a giant fraud, but no one noticed because they don't know what they're talking about. Right. They don't know what they're talking about, and they're dealing with a million different issues all at once. Does it make sense? So I, I totally get the you know elect kind of older people because they have wisdom – but at the same time, does it make sense for there to be limits on age where you get more young people involved in these situations who actually know the technologies, especially on those special subcommittees where technology is such an important part? Yes. It makes sense to get people that understand it. And young people are going to be more likely to understand it. But do you want people with a lack of wisdom? Like These are the type of people they were dealing with at Twitter. They were dealing with young millennials that were deciding to... <laughs> to censor information and to, you know, I mean, that that was one of the problems that they had with uh, issues like dead naming people. 
you know, like uh, if someone can change their name and change their gender, and if you use their old name, like if you called uh, Caitlyn Jenner Bruce Jenner, you'd be banned for life, which is bizarre because that person named Bruce Jenner won the fucking Olympics. Like, what are we supposed to do there? Like, you're you're just you're you're doing this based on an ideology. You're not doing this based on fact. The actual fact is that person was born Bruce Jenner. Now, to be kind and respectable, and you know, to that person and refer to them in the gender that they want is nice. It's a good thing to do. But why is that problem uh, something that gets you banned for life? But you can call someone a cunt. And that's fine. <laughs> I have no idea. See, this is why I stay in my lane of scams because I'm just like, <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, you have to stay It's in impossible lane. to. And ultimately, like, one of the things I realize. So, so I consider myself a journalist, but one of my few privileges is that I don't have to engage in politics. Yeah. And it's. And it is a privilege because I see people just lose their mind. Lose their mind. In this culture war. And it's like, I, I mean, I, I don't know anything about most of these issues and I'm like I have I have expertise in like one thing and like and it's and I I do have an expertise in it but it's like but I think now if you're a journalist and you're sort of on the if you you politically align yourself now you're expected to have a position on everything yes even if you have no idea what you're talking about well then you're expected to take the part whatever the party line is you're expected to take it even if you haven't considered it considered it that's what happens. And I've seen sort of people in the media become like co-opted by their audience where mm-hmm. they, they have to have these opinions. Yes. And so I feel lucky because I feel like there is no like mainstream thought and like scams. I'm just like, let me interview a few victims and like yeah. they'll tell the story and that's great. And I kind of stay away from that. So, I mean, for, for me, that's where that's where I always go back to is I'm just like, I don't know. I... That's a very good position because I've fallen into that. I, I haven't fallen into audience capture, but I have fallen into the uh, ideological game where you, if you're in one camp, you're supposed to have all the opinions that one camp has. Yeah. And if you do not align with all the opinions that one camp has, you find yourself cast out of the group. And I thought initially, wrongly, that what the internet was going to do was provide people with so much data and so much information that we would lose camps and that people would instead have a more open-minded and centrist view of things and say, well, I could understand why people would think this mm. because of that, and I could understand why, and, and we would have like more of a collective idea. But what I didn't anticipate was social media and the echo chambers that it would provide. Right. And that these ideological echo chambers also come with virtue signaling. And that people get on these things because you're, you're only dealing with a short amount of characters and you state something that you know is going to get a bunch of likes. And people right. are very addicted to likes. And there was some talk about like removing likes because they realized that likes were an issue. And then people freaked out just like those people freaked out about taking away your fucking chatbot girlfriend. And they stopped doing that. They stopped that idea. But if you didn't know whether or not people agree with you or disagree with you, I think that'd probably be better overall for people. Because I think that that whether or not people agree with you or disagree with you is important, 
but you don't know those people. It's important if you know the people and you respect them and appreciate them. And that, that used to be the world. Yeah. The, the world used to be, you know, I go to CoffeeZilla and I go, hey, man, what do you think about this Ukraine thing? And then I know you and I know like that you're honest. And so I talk to you and you say, well, this is what I've read. Right. And this is what I think. And then I go, oh, that's interesting because I thought this. And you go, yeah, I thought that too. But then I found out that. And you go, oh, okay. And you get sort of a more informed, neutral position on what things are. I don't think people are getting that. I think they're, I mean, there was a funny, funny meme that came out right when the war started. That was like the instantaneous uh, change from people going from being um, uh, healthcare experts to foreign policy experts. Oh, it's hilarious. It's very funny because that's what people do. They find out what is the new thing that I can say that's going to get me likes. Let me throw that Ukraine flag up in my Twitter bio alongside my gender pronouns and uh, get after it and let's get some likes. And, and now everyone's AI experts too. Now it, yes. they used to be crypto experts, and now it's like everyone's AI expert. Yeah, it's it's the classic. It's like everyone's always current affair experts. It's a weird thing how social media, like it's an echo chamber, but it's it's a weird kind of echo chamber because it's not just what you think. So if that were the case, that would kind of be obvious. But it's also like you're shown the other side, but the most incendiary, insane side of the other side's views. Yeah. Almost to the point it's like caricatures. If you follow so if let's say you're a right winger, you know like, okay, the most insane people on the left are gonna get the most likes from me. Because my camp's gonna love it. They're gonna eat it up. Because they're gonna look as insane as possible. So you make them look insane. The uh the left wing people, they go, okay. Let's select for the most insane right wing person and we'll put him out there. And so they both put out like these like sort of extreme views of the other side to their audience. Right. right. And then you and then if you're in that echo chamber, you go like, wow, those guys are literally insane. I mean, yeah. th because you think that's what the other team is just like agreeing with. Like, yeah, this is normal. And meanwhile, the other team would be like, yeah, that's a little crazy. But like, we actually think this we have a more moderate position on whatever. Um, so, you know, what I usually find is when you actually deal with individuals instead of like labels and ideologies, what you usually find is people are are pretty normal. But, you know, we're just a lot of people have been caught up in this in this uh, battle. And it's like a reaction to the reaction of the reaction. Yep. Where, you know, you go from like, OK, it was the mainstream media. Then it was like a, like independent media. And then I find that like. You know, and I'm I I'm in independent media, and so I understand the temptation as many, as much as anybody to like dunk on mainstream media because it's like it's easy, it's like great, it's like you get right. you know, and they are wrong so often, yeah. but then the mainstream media gets pissed off and they're like, hey, look, you independent media, you're just all you do is spend your time complaining about us. What are you actually doing in terms of news gather? Are you on the ground? What are you doing? Sometimes they are, but you know, I think the news, the it's all just kind of decentralizing into a lot of different camps and, and there's good people everywhere and there's bad people everywhere. There's great journalists, you know, who are trying to make a difference in bureaucracies at MSNBC or wherever. There's great people. There's great regulators trying to make a difference, but everyone's dealing with their own incentive problems and their own challenges with bias and their own echo chambers that they make mistakes, and then when they make mistakes, the other team just goes like, ah. 
Yeah, there's that, and then there's also financial incentives. Yeah. It's financial incentives that- Huge problem. Yeah, I mean, when you get motivated by whoever is your sponsor, whoever is the advertising revenue provider for whatever show you have, and that, that becomes a gigantic issue. When you see a mandate that gets pushed through, and when you see people clearly moving in lockstep all together, like a coordinated effort, to discredit someone or to go after some topic yeah. or to, to give a very biased and distorted version of something that clearly benefits the advertisers, it gets very sketchy. And the, for the mainstream people to say, like, what do you do? All you do is criticize us. Well, that's a very valuable role, guys. Like, that's a very valuable role because you people are fucked. Like, you're not Walter Cronkite. This is yeah. not the New York Times of 1970. This is a completely different animal. And it's an ideologically captured animal. And then you have mainstream television, which is almost bullshit. It's, al it's almost like you could just say CNN is bullshit. Fox News is bullshit. How much of it is bullshit? Is it 30% bullshit? Well, if I gave you a sandwich and it was... Uh, a cheeseburger, but it was 30% dog shit. Am I allowed to call that a cheeseburger? Now you have a, a dog shit infected cheeseburger, right? And that's what a lot of television news is. And it's not news because they need to get you informed because it's, it's like a service that they're providing because most people don't have the time to mm -hmm. gather that information. No, it's a propaganda disseminating entity that relies on advertising. The advertising shapes the propaganda that gets disseminated. That's fucking dangerous. And so if independent media doesn't exist, where someone is not captured by that, can't point that out, we've got a real problem with information. Because then it's going to be who has the most money and who can buy out the most media. And there's a lot of that going on. And that's scary. It's scary for people that don't know the truth. And it's, it feels horrible when you get duped. When you think that a mainstream story is correct. Oh, yeah. And then you find out, oh, my God, I got fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, what I think is everyone, the problem with, like, like uh, pointing out financial incentives is, like, Everyone has financial incentives. Everyone, yes. e e even independent media has to make a buck somehow, right? But what I'll say is I've been on some of these sh like like mainstream shows, not many of them, but, you know, a few of them have invited me on. And what I've noticed is they're just bad. Like the um, the platform itself is just a bad way to express yourself. Absolutely. Because you go on. I, I went on one and I won't name it, but like you g you're in this waiting room. And they join you in the way to, it's like this Zoom version of it. And they go, hey, how's it going? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, we're on, we're on in five. And then they ask you like this like three-second question and then they cut you off within like you give this like sound. And you're aware like, okay, this is – it's live but it's actually not live. Like they're going to release it later. So I'm like, why can't I really think about my answer? But, right. but it's given with this perspective like, okay, you have, you know, you have this 30-second answer and then they respond. And then before you can even respond, they cut to a new segment. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, you can't even get into – the meat or nuance of the argument it's the the format literally constrains your ability to tell the truth the whole truth and so one of the things that i think has been so just unlocking about youtube is like i just released a story and it was about a 30 minute story so you know how long it was it was 30 minutes when i have a 10 minute story it's a 10 minute story when i have yeah. a 50 minute story it's a that is such an underrated like just format shift to where you are able to tell the truth in the size that it is. Yes. And I think that's the problem now is 
or with the problem with mainstream media that's like it's a challenge is they're stuck in an old format. Yeah, and it's unfixable because they're connected to advertising. So they have to go to commercial every X amount of minutes. And that's not going to change. Yeah, yeah, and you need the in and you need the yeah. out. And, then and they I'm also have with... a time They have a time spot. So their time slot is you know 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's it. So there's many subjects that are deeply nuanced, and you can't cover them in 60 minutes. And you don't get 60 minutes anyway. You get 44 with commercials or maybe even less yeah. depending on the show. That You're fucked. You're fucked because like it must be incredibly frustrating for someone who exists in mainstream media to see a person like you go into a deep dive and then they'll look at the video and like this motherfucker got three million views like this is crazy. You know my stupid fucking show on what network gets you know if you're lucky a couple of hundred thousand and that in in the key demographic what is it like 40 50,000 and these are like big shows and that's hilarious but also it's it's great for you, it's great for me, and it also shows that people have this perception that because short attention span formats like TikTok work, they're very effective, that that's the only thing people wanna consume. That's not true, it's not true. I think it's actually kind of like splitting into two things where you have like, hey, I have a break, I'm gonna watch something short, or hey, I'm like, you know, I'm gonna go do something, let me put on a show, let me like, let me learn while I'm that's become hugely popular. It's yes. like, hey, I'm setting up something in my office. Let me turn something on and learn something, hopefully. While I'm doing it. Get like edu- while you're cleaning your office, you're actually absorbing something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like sitting with, basically sitting in the room with an expert as he describes yes. some topic that I'm interested in. But then there's a problem that, what if that guy's full of shit? What if that guy's full of shit and there's no fact checkers? So there's no one checking. And who facts checks the fact checker? Right. I mean, it's pro- it's problems all the way down. But I think yeah. like the thing that I worry about the most is that um, you know we have to have some commonality. And so you know, I think I think why I like spending time on things that unite people is like I'm like, all right, my show you can agree with no matter what. Like, or you can watch it and you can disagree with it, but like, it doesn't, you're, you're, laying out you're not divided. Yeah. You're not divided by, you know, your interests either way. Um, and I, so I think it's such a ripe moment for journalists to do more than play the game of battles. But of, I don't think they can in mainstream media. That's why it's so interesting. And that's why independent media has a huge advantage. Do you think, do you think like, don't you think like 60 Minutes has done a pretty good job? They only have 60 Minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't even have 60 Minutes. But don't they do like real stories, not just like- they do real stories. Like not just like partisan, you know, whatever. They'll they'll do a little bit of the politics, but they actually like, they'll, and Vice was doing that for a long time. They They did these incredible like documentaries. Like that's journalism at its best where you're just like, you're just deep diving a topic that just people find interesting. You go somewhere, you see, you talk to people and you go, you present the facts, but you don't go in with this pre- like pre thing of okay, I know what happened, and let me tell every like I'm just gonna you know. But Vice is a good example of what's wrong because like they were that, and then they got bought, and then the people who bought it like yeah, you got a great thing going on, but we're gonna fuck that up, and we're gonna turn it into this like woke fucking platform, this weirdo platform, and that's what it is now. It's like you can kind of guess what their angle is gonna be before they even write the story. 
I still I will say there have been a few good vice pieces. Oh, since for sure. Then, but I know I I know what you mean. Like it's like it's really challenging. I I really try to be um, as charitable as I can because I know like a lot of these journalists are working within these horrible constraints of like, you know, they want to do investigative work. You know, one of the dirty secrets of the journalism game is that investigative journalism is the loss leader for every single news agency. Mm. They're all losing money on investigative journalism and they want to do as little of it as possible for the bottom expensive. line. Because it's expensive, man, to go yeah. send out a guy to really do the work. You know right. what's easy? Putting on a commentator and, you know, I can just pull up a bunch of articles all day and I'll just I'll just talk my talking points about those articles. Right. Like that's the profitable side of things because it's quick. You can churn out clips. And at the end of the day, you can use the findings of investigative journalists and you just put them on your show. And yes. you, go, you go, hey, man, like I heard right. you found this. And they spent like three months on it. And you spend like 20 minutes and you get double the views because people, resp they know you because you're on TV all the time or you're yeah. on or you're on the Internet all the time. And so. That's one of the real challenges. Is I know journalists want to do that investigative work, but they have editors. Yes. And they have people telling them, hey, we judge you by the number of clicks you get on our site. We're, yes. a, we're a click site or we're a subscription site. So you've got to cater to the kinds of people who subscribe to us. If we're the New York Times, we have a certain type of people who subscribe to us. If we're, I don't know what the equivalent is, the New York Post or whatever, um, we have a type of person. So. I think the New York Post is more New York Post is more advertising. But the point is, is that these journalists are kind of like sent out on these mandates rather than go find the truth. That's what they want to do. But it's like instead it's, you know, you're battling for attention in a click world yeah. where you're not even controlling your traffic. The social media company is controlling your traffic. And it's about how many likes you get on Twitter and how many retweets you get on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. It's they're trapped and it's not good. It's, it, but with the thing about independent journalists is that it's like they're not going to send someone to Turkey to investigate something. They don't have the money. You know, they also don't have people that they yeah. can just send out. And that was one of the cool things about Vice is they did do that. And back in the day, they, they would send someone to the front lines of some foreign war. And, you know, you, you see some fucking journalist with glasses on with a flak jacket on. Isn't that crazy? It was wild. J yeah. J Vice was wild in the beginning, you know. And I'm good friends with Shane Smith, and I was friends with him in the early days when all that was going down. It was, it's fascinating to see what they did, but he sold it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing, too. Independent media journalists, a after a certain size, they can do it. The The problem is they realize, like, for clicks, it's like, hey, I should just stay in my room and make 20 videos yeah. instead of going out. And so that's why I'm a big believer in like like subscription models mm -hmm. for independent media journalists. Like Substack. To get away. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like the YouTube equivalent of like Patreon. And it's like that is a way for me to free myself from like the view model, mm -hmm. which I did for a long time. Where it was like it was just it was about views. And so eventually I was like, man, I really want to deep dive something and I don't want to be limited to like – do I think this is a popular a popular thing? So that was a big change. And I think, yeah, things like Substack, it really frees up people. And I think as we learn to like pay for journalism, I think that's a, that's a big thing because it's not free. We got the false impression that it was free 
from years of just being able to go on like Google News or whatever and sorting through. Meanwhile, the quality of journalism was just dropping like a rock as everyone moved to, the, to this ad to digital. bottle. Yeah. Yeah, to digital. It's just there's no money in it. I mean, and, and yeah. the money is in just the mass production of just slop. Yeah. Yeah, I don't envy them. It's not good, but it is great for someone like you. Yeah. I mean, it's great for us. Yeah, it, it, it worked. <laughs> It really is. Yeah. I mean, and especially for having long-form conversations. What I found is that anytime a model breaks, it gives you the chance to restart. So you just described the kind of the problems with the models of mainstream journalism that allowed for an opening because people are thirsty for like real conversations. Yeah. Right. And so this podcast can go on as long as it goes on for, and we can clarify anything we can do. But this... If there wasn't problems in the previous generation, there might not have been that opportunity for you to, you know, get big basically doing what you do. Well, this thing didn't exist before. It only you know, the only form that you had that's similar to this was radio. And, you know, morning radio where I mean, this is literally where I came up with the idea to do this was being on the Opie and Anthony show. And really? uh, yeah, and being on the Howard Stern show where you would go, wow, I'd like to have one of these things. We just have fun with people and sit around and shoot the shit. It'd be great. But no one was going to give me a show like that. And they certainly weren't going to give me a show where one day I'm going to interview a UFO expert. The next day it's a psychologist. The next day it's a, you know, uh, an athlete. And it's just whoever I'm interested in. And I would, I wouldn't, no one would say, yeah, interview whoever you're interested in. Here's some mm -hmm. money. You'd have to create it on your own, which is I did, but I didn't do it for profit. I did it because I thought it'd be fun to do. That's literally how I started doing it, and then it became this thing. But I kept it the way I started it, where I'm only, like, I got interested in you by watching your videos. I, I got interested. I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Oh, this guy's clarifying this stuff. I was wondering why. Oh, okay. And then here we are talking. Like, it's that simple. And I reached out to you. Yeah. It's like me to you. And then we're here. There's no other people. It's it's cr it's crazy to think of. You know, I kind of grew up in this. I'm only 28, so I kind of like grew up in like as it was shifting, as everything was shifting underneath people's feet. And it's interesting to watch. Like I am very fortunate to have never had to deal with these middlemen mm, and these people. That's like very fortunate. And people have tried to like inject it, but I got I got enough people who had been burned by that telling me like, hey, you don't. You don't want to sell the show. You yes. don't want. To, you don't want a middle. You don't want this guy saying he can get all these deals. You do not want this guy. He's just going to use you, and he's going to inject himself for nothing. You get nothing, and then and then your show becomes worse. It becomes this different thing. Yep. But I was so fast. Like that is my favorite, and it's legitimately the most exciting part of independent media. Is for the first time, there's no business people telling people what to do. There's yeah. no top line guy who's saying hey we'd really prefer it if you sold more ad spots or mm -hmm. did more of this it's just you and the audience and that direct connection is special and we've never really got gotten to see it before and I, yeah i think that's a game changer yeah i know a lot of people that have podcasts that sold like half of their <sighs> podcast or they you know got into some sort of a deal with a management company and the management company takes a percentage of the show and then all of a sudden other people are on conference calls d dictating guests and telling you to avoid certain subjects or don't have this person on or don't talk about that or every time you talk about this we you know if you get a, a you know a strike against you on YouTube it's going to cost us and 
Yeah, that's not, I mean, then you're you're back in the same trap that you were trying to avoid if you were trying to avoid that trap in yeah. the first place. But a lot of people were not trying to avoid that trap. They just started a thing. And then along the way, that thing became profitable and people recognized it was profitable. And then they swooped in and tried to buy it. And, uh, and it's very tempting. Someone comes along, hey, CoffeeZilla, we've got X amount of money for you. Oh, yeah. And then you don't have to worry about money anymore. Oh, don't you want to do that? And then you're like, okay. Okay, well, here now you have to interview this person. It's all to promote some crappy yes. crypto coin or something. like That's what it always Imagine is. if that was you, if you fell into that. Yeah. No, there's. I mean, there's been plenty of that. People are always asking, like, hey, will you promote this? Will you do that? And it's just like, Ooh. why sell out like that? It's just there's... I, I think people just want to be a free of the tension of worrying about the future. You know, if something yeah. comes along and now all of a sudden you don't have to worry, like they're going to throw X amount of dollars at you and now you're owned by this corporation so you don't have to think about who your guests are. There's always are. catches though. Oh, That's, for sure. The, the thing, I, I think actually though, the kind of, like the kind of day-to-day struggle of like I gotta kind of like you gotta make something I gotta generate something useful is actually kind of good um because it kind of makes you strive it kind of makes you push I I really like you know I I feel like I'm literally living a dream because I started making these YouTube videos now I've got this like crazy set and you know I'm able to like learn all about cinematography and somehow I get paid for it and it's kind of this wild thing, but at no point did I have to ask for anyone's permission. Yeah, like that is like the like the nobody had to give me a chance. Like you kind of create your own your own chance in a weird way. That's uh, the beauty of YouTube, you know. And I had a conversation with Russell um, Brand about this, and I'm like, here's this guy who's a movie star, yeah. this huge movie star, who decides, you know what? I'm just gonna have a camera pointing at me and I'm gonna rant and rave and have these comedic takes on social issues and issues in the news. And it's become massively popular. And I'm like, one of the things that's interesting is like, you're doing it the way anyone can do it. Like anyone can set up an iPhone and have it point at you and you just start talking and then make a video. And there's a lot of them out there. Like you're not doing anything different. Right, you know what's fascinating is, you know what was the biggest tell? Like when I felt like everything broke was when all the late night people had to go home for yes. COVID. Wasn't that crazy? Amazing. You got it. You got to see like they went from, you know, they're TV people. And all of a sudden what's on TV looks like a YouTube video. Yes. And you go, oh my gosh. You suck at this. This whole time, <laughs> like I thought you guys were something. Like you're the same as me. You're yes, but worse. Like, but like worse. Yeah, yeah, way worse. I'm doing it myself. You have this whole team of people, and it's like this is all you can. I, and then you, it kind of breaks the illusion. Like it's like seeing someone run a four minute mile or whatever. You're like, oh, I can do, I can do this show. Like th- I got this idea to like make this crazy set because I I saw somebody do this like TED talk about like. You know, um, I think their line was like, you can't become Kanye in your living room. Like, you got to make an environment that, like, speaks to what the show is. Mm. It's kind of a weird thing now. But with some Kanye, people but... do do it very popular. They have a very popular show, and they do just do it from their living room. And that and that's a different appeal because that's, like, that's raw. So right. there's an appeal to the raw, and then there's also an appeal to, like, you know, high production value. And it's it's different things. They both communicate a different like kind of appeal to the work. But I I was always obsessed with like, there is no difference between YouTube and like Hollywood besides just a little bit of knowledge, a little bit like insider, like they kind of know tricks. There's tricks of the trade. They kind of have a little bit more money. But I was like, 
you can hack this together now. Yes. Like you can figure out ways to kind of like almost get to like a Netflix like so that's my that's my dream is to start pushing for like real like documentaries or mini documentaries on YouTube that look like they could be on a Netflix or something like that, but never go to Netflix. Yeah. Like never take the deal. Like yeah. never go to the producer. Yeah. Just always be doing it yourself. Yeah. I think what you're saying about the late night things is so so true because I remember watching them do monologues with no audience and I was like, who said okay to this? Why are you doing this? There's not a fucking chance in hell that this is funny or gonna work. And when you see those flat, corny, late night monologue jokes with no audience, those are so fucking cringy. And you, you're also, you're, you're dealing with a lot of these people that are not stand-up comics. So they don't even really, truly understand how to deliver it right. Like, they don't have the chops. What they're doing is just, like, reading off of a teleprompter so a bunch of really good joke writers wrote them some stuff, and then they're playing to the audience, and the audience is, like, laughing so they get this feedback, and they know how to do that. When they're just them and the camera, you're in the void now. You're, you're in deep space. There's no one around you. And it's fucking wild to watch. It is wild. Can you unlock, like, how different is that from, like stand up I'm, I'm just like a casual viewer of like the like late nights i mean i know they say like applause but is that real like laughter and like are they like saying like hey clap oh or... there's someone who's doing this there's someone in front of the crowd there's a there's oh. a warm-up guy and generally the warm-up guy's a failed comedian or a middling comedian who's just trying to make it and they're they're you know they're you doing the warm-up thing is like a side gig and there's people that are good at warm-up and the problem with being good at warm-up is it's a profitable job and it'll actually keep you from being good at stand-up oh you're like stuck doing yeah so you get forever. stuck I've had friends that were stuck doing warm-up and then they some of them quit and some of them didn't and the ones that didn't are fucked and because those shows aren't they don't even ex exist anymore there's only a handful of those shows so, like, if you see, like, how many talk shows are there? There's, there's very few. Yeah. There's Colbert. There's Jimmy Kimmel. There's Fallon. Fallon. There's a few. There's only a few. Yeah. And so, you know, they, um, they stand there, and uh, there's applause signs. And then there's producers. There's the warm-up guy that's literally telling people to applaud. They're like, okay, explaining to the people. Yeah. Okay, when Jimmy comes out, I want a big round of applause. Let's practice this right now. Ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. And everybody they practice it. Yes, yes, yes. They'll they'll wow. they'll train the audience how to do it, depending upon the set. Uh, but I've seen them do that at different places. And I had a friend who was a writer in the early days of Conan. He's a buddy of mine. He was a comic, and uh, I went to see one of the very very early Conans. So this is like, I guess it was like the nineties or the early two thousands. No, it had to be the nineties. It was the nineties. Yeah. And they were reading their their banter between Conan and uh, who's the other guy? Andy Richter. Oh, Andy Richter. Yeah. They were reading off of uh, cue cards, so they had a giant cue card. The Come banter on. was fake, so the banter, their 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 dialogue back and forth was scripted. 
So they were saying, so Andy, you know, I understand you got married. And blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they're reading it. And I'm watching the cards. I'm like, this is madness. Oh, who, wow. who approved this? And it was terrible. The early days of Conan, like that, that sort of banter was fucking. The thing about Conan is like, he's this funny guy. He was a funny writer. He's a really smart guy. And he had to figure out how to do the yeah, talk show. Yeah, he figured shows. it out. He figured it out. But in the beginning, it was awful. And uh, I watched, like, they're, they're like the audience is being cheered on. There's wow. literal applause signs that flash to tell you when to applaud. And like, we'll be right back. Yay! And everybody claps. Is everybody really clapping that you're going to be right back? Nobody gives a fuck if you're going to be right back. I feel like they didn't know that, though. Like, I feel like media literacy has kind of gone through the roof. Like, oh, so yeah. many people... I guess it's maybe everyone has cameras now. So everyone's like sort of mini producers now of their own show. Sure. And so they get it now. And so all of a sudden the cr- the craving for authenticity gets so much higher because now you're aware of like what a teleprompter. Everyone knows what a teleprompter is. Everybody's yes. sort of like, even though I didn't know how exactly I worked, I kind of was vaguely aware that like they, they kind of told you to applaud. And like, and the laugh tracks in, you know, sitcoms were just canned laughter. So I feel like as people realize the fakery, there's a craving for like, hey, can you do this for real? Like, can you not, you know, I, I remember when I found out like none of the conversations were real. Mm. Like, I was like, what? Right. What do you mean it's not real? Like they all, because it's all a pretend. Like they're right. all they're all pretending that you really knew about my funny boat story. And like right. I had this quippy, you know, and I thought, wow, they're so charismatic. And you couldn't find out they've been rehearsing the story. Yes, and like, they go over with a producer on the phone. And it's it's completely insane when you realize that you go like, oh, it's all fake. And it's and the illusion is sort of gone. And so now I think one of the surprising things, but also maybe obvious in hindsight things was, why shows with no laugh track, less less production, are more engaging yes. is because there's more of a realization of oh there are there isn't like games here. There's just two people talking. They haven't rehearsed their lines, and I mean I came on here. You like there was no production notes. There was no like hey we want to talk about this. It was just like hey you want to come on, and that's all it is. And so I think I think yeah, that- we didn't even discuss what we we're going to talk about. No, no, no. We, which is what I do with everybody. I just have them come in and talk. Yeah, it, well, it's fast. It's fascinating, and I think that's partly to do with like why people enjoy the show is that they know it's not like tricks and gimmicks. I, I wonder. There's like it's funny to me as I'm thinking about it. I'm like, there's sort of like this, like the world is accelerating in two directions towards like authenticity, and then like with all the beauty filters and like the mm. fake AI voices, it's like you can fake reality, but we also crave reality at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, people are craving real human experiences. And if you watch those late night shows, you never feel like you know that person, you never feel like you're there. But if you're just talking, and you and I are just talking, someone is like, on their iPhone or whatever they're doing, they're a fly on the wall. Yeah, I mean, they're here, in a weird way. I th- I always thought that it, it like live streaming your whole life would become big. Well, that was the Truman Show, right? Yeah, no, but I thought I thought we would see it. Like, I guess you see it with Twitch streamers who like stream like twelve hours a day. Mm-hmm. But I kind of thought what would take off as a I was kind of surprised it didn't was like, you just watch my whole life, like like. Some I, people did do that they for a while, They tried right? it. I, yeah, I was kind of surprised that didn't, because I thought, I thought like eventually you'd have celebrities who their whole life would be on display and like the authenticity of just sitting in a room with somebody with just, it's quiet. 
I think people just got too weirded out by that. But wasn't there a there was a movie? I forget who was in the movie, but there was a movie where someone had their whole life filmed, and at the end they rejected it and decided. That's to... Truman Show for sure. But Truman Show was like that was the Jim Carrey movie, right? Yeah, yeah, that's. But that was fake, right? Like he didn't know. He didn't know they were filming his whole right. life, and he rejects it. There was another one where the person became famous because they followed them around with cameras everywhere. Uh... And the end of it, like, you fell in love with a girl or something, and it was over. You know, there's always some corny fucking reason why he <laughs> yeah. cancels it. Do you remember? You know what I'm talking about, Jamie? Yeah, 100%. I'm trying to figure it out. I thought, Matt, so, for some reason, Matthew McConaughey was in, but I don't think Maybe was it was it. Ethan Hawke or someone, like, some, some famous person. But it's they like something TV. Yeah, Ed TV? Yeah, there you go. That's it. Who was it? Who was Ed TV? But it was that. was the kind of the premise of the film. Yeah, it was like Matthew this, McConaughey. It was Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, 1999. 99. So in that movie, he like gives up on everything after a while, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. See, the can that was it. You're live on Ed TV. So that was him, just a regular guy who became famous living his regular life. How crazy is it that that was 99? It is crazy. And they kind of predict, I mean, that was just in TV Hurley. for a while. And How does she, became... she's still so hot. How is she doing that? <laughs> Fuck is she taking? She pulled it off. But it's that was the thing is like that this would be bad and they were they're sort of like saying no one wants this like imagine if you got famous this way what a disaster. Meanwhile, then you have social media influencers who are you know every single aspect of their life they're live streaming they're putting it on camera. Yeah, that's what Justin TV started as. It was yeah, like eight years later though. He he literally oh. attached a webcam. Yeah, that's right to his baseball cap. I've talked about Justin He's TV really interesting. was the first time we live streamed. We mm. live streamed on Justin TV in the green room of comedy clubs. So what we would do is like uh, my buddy Redband, Brian Redband, uh, we would go on the road together, and uh, we just we thought it'd be funny to just like live stream while we were there in a green room. Yeah, and so we just did that just for fucking around, and it was just. Totally like, yeah, there that's us in the green room. <laughs> it's, it's still there. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's on because it's turned oh my Twitch. Gosh. I think wow. that's the Hollywood improv, right? Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, one of them was that. The other one was Pasadena. It's, it's, it's that's back in my full beard days. So we did that before the podcast itself and just for fun. And so there was like all these different versions of it that I tried out and where I was thinking like, there's got to be a way to do something where I don't have to go to someone and say, hey, can you give me a show? And then when I saw Tom Green's show, that was what, there was two things that gave me a big, big, the big idea. One of them was Anthony Cumia from Opie and Anthony. He did this thing called Live from the Compound where he had his house set up with a green room in his basement. And Anthony's a psycho. So he was like singing karaoke while holding a machine gun. It was like, it was so crazy because he had all this money, right? Yeah. He's very wealthy. So he had like a full like production set. Like he built a set in his basement. And I was like, this is wild. He can just do it. But he was already on this Opie and Anthony show. And so he decided for fun with his friends, like he had, you know, a fucking like a full bar down there with like Guinness on tap. And they were just drinking and being ridiculous. And he was doing a talk show and just having fun, just being silly with his friends. And I was like, I could do that. And so we started doing something like that with a laptop. And when I went to um, uh, Tom Green's house, Tom Green had turned his home into a television studio. And it was on the internet. And this was, 
2007, somewhere around then. Mm -hmm. And so he had like these fucking cables running through his living room and then he had a server room and everything like that. And he, he takes me in this tour. I'm like, this is wild. And there's a video of me sitting uh, next to Tom Green because he sat, had it set up just like a regular talk show yeah. where he had a desk like Johnny Carson and he was sitting there and he had screens and this is me explaining why I think this is going to be the future. Life, for sure they'd be assholes. There's no super cool hecklers. They don't yeah. exist. <laughs> no, this is not about that, but th th this is, that's me too. But there is, there is one video of so me that like, was figuring like a it out. Yeah, that's like a live stream show. Yes. That's it. So this yeah, is I like- I think this uh, is awesome. Thank you, man. See, no, I mean, this is the craziest thing ever. It really is different, you know, yeah. than, than television. This or is anything. way better. It's like radio, but it's like television. And the genre is different because we can sit here and ramp. You know, there isn't that time constraint. You know, there isn't that pressure. I mean, you know, we want to keep it moving. Well, not only but, that, you know, there's it's... not a corporate pressure. You, you can't uh, just express yourself because you're expressing yourself to someone who's selling advertising space. Yeah. That's this, crazy. You just need to keep doing this. You called this um, out. This, we need to figure out how you make money from this. Yeah. I've got a lot of neat ideas I want to talk to you about because yeah. I know Isn't you're doing this computer thing. Take a little bit from the big wigs, right? Dude, this is, I mean, fancy suits. they don't need to exist. Yeah. They're non-creative people. We mm. talked about this before the show. They're non-creative people who are controlling creative things. Yeah. And they want to have their input. Together. Just abandon them. Oh. Abandon ship. Isn't that crazy? Wow. That called it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you caught you kind of did. You know, I just realized why no one live streams their whole life. I just realized it. I remember people were trying and like they would go out and they'd call it IRL live streaming. And you go mm. to like the store. You know, what the problem was what people would swat you. Oh, so they'd like call in a bomb threat or something. Oh, God. So the problem is you get enough people watching live. One of them is a psychopath. Or, right. or they just want to, you know, they want to get attention. Who knows why? Well, you know, Tim Pool has that problem. He's been swatted. Like, how many times has Tim Pool been swatted? Multiple times. Like, many times. It's a real issue with him. It's a, it's an issue with live streamers, though, because yes. you get the reaction. Right, Because if, right, if I'm shooting right. a show and something happens, I'll never put it out. You don't say anything. Right. But with a live show, because it's, you know, it's just happening in the moment, you get to see them put, put their hands up mm -hmm. and, you know, the whole nonsense and... And then they get their little, like, you get mad about it, it stops the whole show, and they know they had that impact. Of course, yeah. So that's what's bad about, li like, That's IRL. only one thing. The other thing is, like, what is life then? Is life a performance? Are you? Are People you are going to let that stop them, though. But are you capable of being so in the moment that you you are just yourself, no matter what? Even if cameras are on, you would behave and exist the same way you would if there's no cameras on. No. I don't think I don't think most people would be capable of that. I mean, I enjoy keeping my private life private, my public life public. I think there's like I think that's pretty normal and I think things get weird when everything's online, your family's online. I've seen people who they put out everything. They put out yeah. their, their kids, their their And their, they do it for the clicks. That's what's weird. And you're when, also not asking the kids your kids are going to get famous when they're babies, and then they don't have any say in it. And then as they get older, people know them. And then you run into all sorts of security issues because of that, too. And Yeah. 
It's just not wise, and there's a lot of people that don't think. They just do it, and, you know. It's their op- Well, it's also like an opportunity. Like, kids' sh- uh, channels were big on YouTube mm-hmm. where they were running these, like, f- or, sorry, family channels is what they called them because you'd watch the family together. Yeah. And then you'd get, like, your kids would like to watch their kids, mm-hmm. and people grew multi-million dollar brands on the back of that, and it's like, by that point, it's too late to stop because you got a mortgage, you know, right. you're depending on that money coming in, yeah. and so you can't your kid better get on camera. I just want to know, like, do you tell your kid, like, get on, get on your mark, like, like, hey, can you react to that again? Can you help me with this thumbnail? Like, that's crazy. And then if the kid becomes famous when they're young, they're in so much trouble. There's very few people that ever survive being famous when they're young. Very few. They all come out fucked up. It's not a normal way to develop. Fame is a drug that you have to develop a tolerance for. And if you don't develop that tolerance, you actually develop with that drug. Like instead of like experiencing adversity, exp- instead of developing your personality, you know, like to to like realize like what 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 is wrong with the way I communicate? Why do people get mad at me? Why are people why do people like me? Like you sort it out as a human. It's it's how you interact with the world. It's why kids you know, pick on each other and they're mean to each other and they're, they're figuring out how to communicate and be social. If you're five fucking years old and you're already famous, you're in deep shit. And they're all in deep shit. I've met quite a few of them now. I've interviewed quite a few of them on this podcast. I've met quite a few of them in real life and they're all fucked. Everyone who becomes famous when they're a child is fucked. I don't know. I mean, I was going to ask, like, do we know of anybody who... Just navigating like mega fame in general, I don't think I've seen many people do it without kind of getting eaten a little bit. Yeah, you get eaten a little the... bit. You you need to do something to mitigate that. You need to just do something real. And if you do not do something real, then you're like the responses you get, if that's what you're living for, and if your your worth and your value is based on people's people's uh, attention to you and people's interaction with you that's not good it's very bad and that's why i mean it also like how many of them are narcissists to begin with and how much of that narcissistic tendency gets fed by being famous it's it just like i think with my like phone i've sort of given myself some like low grade adhd i think i think too much of the like attention online makes you into a narcissist, even if you weren't one originally, or right. it has the potential to do so if you don't actively mitigate it. One of the strangest things is like when when you get hot online, everybody wants to be your friend. All of a sudden, these people come out from the woodwork and all of a sudden everyone wants to be your friend. And then when you're not hot again, now it's like you don't exist. Mm. And that's a bad way to experience life, that your whole identity and your whole friendship base and everything's wrapped up with how you're doing online. And like, I know for me, at least, I'm, I, I try to just segment my life to where the online thing is online and all my real friends are just in my city, just like kind of regular people have different jobs. I think it's kind of important to detach yourself so that when things aren't going well, it's fine. When things are going well, it's fine. There's like a stabilizing something. I feel like well, you're you... describing Hollywood. You know, you're describing the problems with Hollywood. In Hollywood, when you make it, like if you're you're in a movie and you're you're doing well, everybody loves you. Oh, Coffeezilla, come on through the red carpet. Let's go. 
Coffeezilla is hot now. We want to put him in this movie, and they want to put him on this show. We want to do this. And then when you're not, no one wants to talk to you. Doesn't that break you psychologically, though? Of course. That's why they're all crazy. <laughs> I mean, in, in Hollywood, it's even worse, right? Because you don't get to choose your own destiny. Like, you, you've developed your own show, and you've created your own thing. You haven't been chosen. In Hollywood, the problem is you're being chosen for everything. So you're being cast in these things. So you have to deal with people that approve you or pick you. So you're formulating your personality based on whatever the zeitgeist is, whatever the ideology of most of the producers are. Like if all of Hollywood was right wing, right, if all the producers and all the executives and all the studios were all very conservative and right wing, all actors would be conservative. They would all be pro-life. They would all be First Amendment, Second Amendment happy. They would all carry guns. They would all, it would be 100% compliance, the same way it is with left wing. They're not necessarily people that think that way. They think that way because that is the way to fit in and be successful. So you take people that already have this exorbitant need for attention, and then you bring them into an environment where they have to be chosen. So you have to figure out what gets me chosen. So you form your ideas and opinions based on what's going to be the most successful. It's a mating strategy. It, it's weird because the fact you need to be chosen sort of makes you play the same game that you don't like, which yeah. is you have to go to the power brokers and you have to suck up to them the same way people suck up to you when you're successful. You have to go suck up to the successful people. Yeah. And now you're playing the same game where you're going to the people who are the decision makers and you're trying to woo them and pretend you're their friend. That's why when That's those weird. people do make it and they do get pushed through that red carpet, come on through, Tom Cruise. They're all fucking crazy. And a lot of them treat other people like shit because they want to let you know that they're a part of the chosen class. So that's like this thing about certain celebrities being assholes to, to regular people. Like, wh why do they treat people like that? Well, the same reason why royalty does it. You know, like when you see the queen, you're supposed to bow. Like, this is how it goes down. That's why they became the queen in the first place. That's why they became a star in the first place. Because they want to be that person that just gets fucking exorbitant amounts of love and attention. It's, and it's very unhealthy. And it's good, I think, that it's now becoming possible that you can be like a Mr. Beast or something and be yeah. like, not be in Hollywood. He's like yeah. in North Carolina or whatever. Yes. And he can just do his own thing. He can start his own. And he's as, he's as big of a brand as anybody. Yep. And it's like, it just doesn't matter. He's doing his, he doesn't have to like kind of play the same games. I think that is a, like... Some, sometimes I think changes in technology are like neutral. Like it's like kind of like you win some, you lose some. I think that is a distinct change for the better that we've kind of decentralized Hollywood a little bit. And it's like you can just start your own show. You're not – we talked about being subject to the gatekeepers but even subject to that like kind of mentality of like everything's about success and fame. And yeah. That's the currency of Hollywood. But well, it's, it's also the motivation. Like what is the motivation to do it in the first place? A lot of the people that are in Hollywood, their motivation is purely for attention. Their motivation is purely to become successful and famous. Whereas his motivation seems to be to have fun and to do things with the money that is actually altruistic and good and beneficial and, you know, charitable. He's a really good guy. Like, that's one of the appeals. And also, there's no one, like, filtering him. That's who he is. 
that's that guy. He's very smart and very ambitious, but he's also not really money hungry, and he dumps most of the money back into the production of his show. He's legit. I mean, you know, I have a lot of um, a lot of people you meet behind the scenes, and they're like, they're different. You know, it's like yeah. the same guy you meet, and that's always a huge letdown. I've had so many ex- examples of that, but like. But he was one of the first, like, not first, but there are a lot of guys, but the big, the biggest stars, I guess, are the ones that are most like, you're like, ah, you're a bit different. But he was like, when I, when I met him, we talked a bit and it's just like, dude, this guy's legit. Like he's, yeah. he's the real deal. Yeah. He's, that is who you get. The, the guy that you see that when he's doing those videos with his friends, joking around and making them do stunts and pranks and all the different little games that he comes up with for where people can win money. That's really who he is. YouTube's lucky because it could be anybody. Like they don't select who is like on top, and they're fortunate because it could just be like some like, like some super narcissistic like monster. I don't know if it would work. I because oh you're saying it's selected for like yeah yeah because a super yeah. narcissistic monster I don't think would create something that's re- relatable. That's a good point. Yeah, could they get some? You had you had uh, there was this huge YouTube channel. I think they still might be the biggest, like T series or something. There's some random corporation. I I think there are ways to growth hack it maybe. But but you're right. You wouldn't create such a brand. Right. You couldn't fake it forever. You couldn't fake authenticity. I don't think you can. I think after a while it gets exposed and people realize you're full of shit. Yeah. The longer you talk, especially yeah. Especially on the longer you, if you're in little sound bites, you can pull it off for a little bit. But the longer you talk, the more it gets shown. Uh, Unless you just have amazing stamina for bullshit. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? I'm sure, right? Like there's statistically, there has to be someone who came on the show and you're like, oh my gosh. Like after like an hour? That they're full shit? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. There's quite a few people that I talk to that are full shit. And it's unfortunate. Like sometimes people like, you know, I've had people come on where I don't realize until like an hour and a half, two hours in. And then I start asking them certain questions and you realize like, there's something fucking funny about your answers here. Like, this is not. And then we'll research them after the show. Like, oh, good Lord. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a, it's an issue, you know, it's like, and there's also people that just, you know, whatever their motivations are, they're not good. You know, like, what 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 is their motivation to do a show in the first place? Like, is their motivation just to try to make the most amount of money, or are they trying to do a good show? Like, if you're trying to do a good show and you keep working at it, it'll get better. Go watch my early shows; they fucking suck. And like, you get better if you're actually just trying to do it and get better at it. But if your motivation is just to make money, like somewhere along the line, usually you slide off. I think most people who like want to make money just go into finance. Like. <laughs> Yeah, but they also want attention. You know, they oh, want right. money they want and they want attention. And, and then once you've gotten the attention, that's the thing about fame, right? Like, if you go to a store and there's a security guard at that store, you don't think, look at this poor fuck who's a security guard at a store. You just think he's a guy. Like, hey, man, what's up? How you doing? You don't treat him badly. But if you go there and it's Will Smith, Will Smith has lost all his money. Now he's a security guard at the store. Look at this fucking loser. Let's go visit Will Smith. Ah! And you, you laugh at him. How much you make here, Will? What, are you going to slap me to kick me yeah. out? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Would, you, would, you would be free to do that. And that was the case with Gary Coleman. You remember Gary Coleman? Oh, the... Yeah, the tiny guy. He used to have that show Different Strokes. And he was famous on television, but then he... I don't know what happened, lost all his money, and he was a security guard at a studio. And they hired him to be the guy that, like, when people yeah. drive through, they meet him. And then people realized he was there. And this was, like, before social media. 
Um, so this was like early on. And it was a real problem because people would go there just to mock him and make fun of him. Because someone who used to be famous and now is not is a loser. But someone who's just never been famous is just a person. It's very interesting. But th it's so weird because everyone who achieves any level of notoriety knows how temporary and more than even the audience know. They know that it, there's a shelf life on everything. Yeah. Very few people make it an entire career like I'm always thinking like ah, it's gonna it's gonna be over like you know next month right because it's just it, that is the nature of especially online fame is even more fleeting than the old days of movie stars it's yeah. like it's even less so I don't understand why that is it feels like I don't I don't really buy into that I mean I think it's just people are people and and you have your moment in in like the spotlight for one reason or another. It's usually not about who you are. It's just you're saying something at a time that resonates and things don't resonate forever. Right, but think of your perspective and where you're coming from. You're a 28-year-old guy who is doing really well right now. So you are in the spotlight and you haven't had a lot of time outside of it. I mean, how old were you when you started your show? I think I got actual attention maybe 26, 25, 26. Yeah. So for the last three years. So you didn't go through like this long, terrible right. period of fucking hating Darkness life. Darkness and depression. Yeah. So a yeah. lot of people fucking hate life and they look at someone who is a movie star or a television star like Gary Coleman and they go, wow, how the fuck that guy, how's he doing it? How's he got a, he's got a fucking Ferrari, he's got a this, he's got a that. And then when they don't have it, like, ha ha, you're less than one of them. You're less than a normal person because you're a person that used to be free of it. You're a person that used to be, we love a story of some movie star that spent all their money and now they're broken crazy. I remember, who's the woman, was it Margot Kidder? Is that her name? The woman from Superman? Um, there was a woman who was, she played Lois Lane in the early Supermans with Christopher Reeve, and she went crazy. And, like, she lost all of her teeth, and she was like, someone found her in the bushes somewhere. Like, it was, like, real sad, like real mental illness problems. And I remember there was this deep fascination with this person who was a movie star at one point in time, and then had completely fallen apart. Like, what was the story with her? Do you remember the story with her, Jamie? You nailed as much as I remembered, yeah. Yeah, something happened. She had a, some sort of a mental health breakdown, and I'm, I'm sure some of that had to do with fame and society and acting and just the the world that they live in of the movie star. And then also the women's world of a movie star, which is a fucking much more brutal world. That's brutal. Because, you know, I was talking about Elizabeth Hurley. She's the rare, the rare that, that stays hot. Like she's hot, and she's like fucking 80 years old. She had an accident, I guess, that left her paralyzed. Out. Oh my gosh! Oh. She lost some money and it had some issues with. Oh boy, this this long... I I will say like one of the challenges is, you you kind of have to. You don't know how long you're gonna stay relevant, and then if you don't make the money, then now what do you do? I guess I guess is the point, and then so if you haven't set yourself up. Then I guess, and and a lot of these people, they think it's going to be last lasting forever because their agents tell them it's going to last forever. Yeah. So they just spend all their money, and then, uh, especially if they don't pick up any you know skills, one of the things like with with actors is all you learn is acting. I mean, w one of the interesting things now, which is kind of 
fascinating about like modern like you know people who grew up on TikTok and like the YouTube era is you kind of have to learn like marketing you have to learn video editing you have to yeah. learn so you can pick up skills to where you're never going to be completely you know I know a lot of YouTubers who now work for other YouTubers because they like they stopped being relevant but they're like I understand content I understand mm. how this stuff works. They're not just a face. They're not just like a pretty face. They have right. actual tangible skills beyond that. That is an issue, though. I mean, I can I can understand why that's a problem. And I think here's a big issue with someone like yourself. What if YouTube goes away? That's the real issue. Like, sure. What, if you if you're relegated to one platform, and that platform, what if the platform decides for whatever strange reason? Like, what if they get pressure from someone who you've outed? Right. And they come up with some bogus reason to strike your account and delete your account. That's a real issue. Yeah. Like if you're beholden to one company, that, it, that, that can be a real problem. It is a huge problem. Right now, the number one video sharing site in the world is basically YouTube. And that's essentially it. I yeah. mean, there's not really anyone else. Um, there's like alternatives like Rumble. But, you know, like that's kind of... I don't know why it's perceived as kind of like a, a right-wing thing. So it's sort like sort of, but then you know Russell Brand's on it, and you know I'll um, say Glenn po Greenwald. Let's it. say political commentary thing. I mean, I don't know if like mainstream, like just like random creators are doing really well. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's there. Maybe it's not. I think I think you're pointing out though a very good point, which is like I. As much as we talk about the decentralization of gatekeepers, there is one gatekeeper to rule them all still for mm -hmm. someone like me. Yeah. That is YouTube. I mean, I would like to think that, you know, throughout you learn enough about making stuff, making content that you could move. I, I would probably try to transition into some like production role. Yeah. Uh, start a production company. I mean, I but love. I think you would still enjoy doing the thing you do. Oh, I, you'd figure out a way I, to do. It. You'd have to figure out a way yeah. to do it somewhere else. But also, you'd have to figure out a way to bring. Like, here's the other problem: social media, right? Social media is where you use to promote yeah. the thing yeah, that course. you're doing on YouTube. So, what if that goes away? What if something like? We have to assume that if, if Twitter was on the verge of bankruptcy, apparently yeah. when Elon bought it, sure. it was fast tracking to bankruptcy. What if someone incompetent bought it and then ran it into the ground? Then it doesn't exist anymore. And then all those people that use Twitter to promote their businesses, stand-up comedians that use it to promote their tour dates, like they're fucked now. It's gone. Now you don't have that vehicle, and so your your ability to access your fans is completely gone. Yeah, you don't own any of your data. So right. you don't own any of your subscribers' data. You don't own any of that stuff yourself. It's a real, it's a real, issue. it's a real challenge. I mean, one of the things they also control what you can talk about. So when I was doing, you know, my first show, um, I kind of had this, I had this video where I wanted to explore smoking and like, and like vapes through the lens of the FDA and how they regulated vaping and they sort of went after vaping. But, um, you know, it's a problem, but it's also like seems like it's a lot healthier than like just smoking cig cigarettes are like the worst thing in the world for any human to to be doing, although, you know, it's very fun. Um, but they're they're horrible for you. And so I did a video about that. YouTube like age gated it. So mm. now not only no monetization, which that, you know, it's acceptable. It's just kind of the cost of being on YouTube. You sometimes get demonetized, whatever. The reach was killed. So mm. now this video, which everyone loved, nobody can watch, 
or you won't get recommend like you know the recommended feed. There's also a problem that now you're in a specific category. Like I don't know how their algorithm works, but if you do get flagged for something, you could get put in a problematic category. Right, which you're makes a you shadow banned or less likely to be recommended. Right. So, um, so I think especially I think they say their official stance is they do it on a video by video basis. I don't actually know. I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out, you know, what's true, what's not. But, but I will say, like, did I ever do a video about that again? No. Yeah, you self censor. Yeah. And that's what that's happens a big to people. Problem. That happened during COVID with a lot of people. You know, people wanted to talk about issues like the lab leak hypothesis. Usually they're important issues too. Yeah. That's the problem. It's right. like they're controversial, so they are important. Right. But it's like, you know, I understand YouTube's perspective. They have they have I don't know how many maybe they're supporting hundreds of thousands of people's livelihood. At and least. they're like and they're like, do we want to risk it all? On so somebody can say some wild stuff like right, and then the advertisers pull out, they lose X percentage of the revenue, and then whoever that producer is that allowed that channel to exist, Gone. now that person gets fired, and you know their success in this company is based on whether or not the company is bringing in revenue, and if you're allowing all these people to say things that are really terrible to the bottom line of whoever is paying money for advertising. That's not good. Well, what what I've said is like, I think a lot of these, you know, some of these companies, they achieve near monopoly statuses. It's hard to argue that some of these companies aren't close to a monopoly in right. their specific like domain that they're good at. Because, you know, if you're going to make a replica of YouTube, you've seen how hard it is with Rumble. Because it's not like you're just video sharing it's like your video sharing their ai their copyright id they i think they said they spent like 10 million dollars or 100 million to build the copyright id so if you want to compete with them you need to have at least that just to build a copyright id system on par then you got to go host all the video you got to find the adwords targeting yeah. google is the best ad targeting in the world they're not going to give you access to their system if you're a competitor they're not going to give you the same deal so it's like this challenge of okay who can really compete when there's such a high barrier to entry. Right. So I'm thinking like, why are these things not considered some sort of public good in that because we accept that it's so hard to compete meaningfully with these things that are so important to our public discourse, I understand the whole argument of like free speech is just free, freedom to speak against the government, not freedom from a corporation. But what I'm saying is when all our discourse is online, why are these companies not some form of like almost like a utility company? Yes. Like, yes, on at some level, you don't have the right to monetize, but do you have the right to at least say something? Yeah, that's a good point. And that was the point about Twitter. That was the conversation about Twitter being the town square and that it should be regulated like some sort of a utility. And I could see that argument. And it, also, when you think about the concept of free speech in the First Amendment, none of that existed with social media and they would have imagined just trying to wrap your head around social media when they're drafting the constitution with feathers they're literally writing with a fucking quill they they had no idea what they were saying so they were just trying to uh, get people to be able to discuss things without being restricted by the government to stifle tyranny because at the time the tyranny was government. Yes. That's the only people who yes. had the kind of power and oversight to where they could literally stop you from saying anything as a government. Now it's like, okay, you want to say something, the person who's going to stop you from saying it is probably not the government. <laughs> it's probably like some like random 
tech executive. Yeah, random tech executive who has not an unelected, bias. unelected from a yeah exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's um it's this strange thing, and and I think it's actually a very like it should be a universal issue because I think conservatives all don't want to be censored, and that's usually who get censored. But left wing people are all about decentralized power. I mean, that's like the idea is like democracy, more elected, not just like these unelected people, but get more of a like kind of a group say in powerful decisions. Well, then they also should have a problem with the decisions, even though they happen to kind of go a certain way, still being made by unelected people who just can have arbitrary, you know, biases. Like that's the thing is like one day Twitter's owned by um, I forgot the last. Who was the the health of the the leader of health and safety or whatever at Twitter? Um, oh, Vidya. Yeah, 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 yeah. One day it's her. The next day it's like Elon Musk. Right. And they have different like opinions on things. Yeah. And so, do you want to be subject to like both of their whims, or do you want there to be some sort of thing on you know, I don't know, on the books that we could at least sort of have a public vote on it? Well, this is th- this is narrative that's being bantered about now that Twitter's no longer safe from trolls. But Twitter was never safe from trolls. It's just they used to be just left-wing trolls. Now you get right-wing trolls too. It's a, it's it's more of a center. It's not. It's like the idea that Twitter leans right now. No, it doesn't. Like, how many left-wing people that are addicted to Twitter stayed on? Most of them. A few like goofy celebrities like valiantly declared they're leaving Twitter and one of them was my friend I was like what the fuck are you doing like why are you posting that you're leaving like this is so goofy like and you don't even know what you're saying you're just saying this because you think this is gonna be appeal to your base that you're so noble you're gonna leave before the right-wing trolls come back you know like cut the fucking shit and the good thing about People being allowed to speak is that you allow them to put things out there that can be ridiculed by everybody And so if you really oppose these right-wing ideas Let them post them and then post something that ridicules them post something that refutes them post facts post information Get engaged if that's your thing you really like doing that. I don't like doing that But if you like doing that get in there get in there and go to work. It sounds like a huge. I mean I I get exhausted. I'm like just thinking about it. I'm like, who wants to spend their time like arguing with somebody? Like, I don't know. I guess it's just not something I care about. So it's like to me that doesn't matter. But I guess to some people, this is their whole. Just like covering scams is my thing. It's yes. like this is their whole thing. And well, I guess you know that's their like? whole. It's like video games. It becomes their game. Right. That's sure. where they get their score. They their level points. up. Yeah. They, they get level more followers. Up. Get more followers. Level up. Get more likes. You know, people tell you about their engagement. My engagement on Twitter is up. Like, how the fuck do you know? I don't even know how many followers I have. Why are you paying attention? Get out of there. Go outside. Go do something. I think it's deeply bad for health to constantly be given analytics. Like, yeah. like, I, like this is a thing on YouTube. I was talking to Lex about this because he was telling me he doesn't like – he likes to not look at his numbers. And I was like, man, I love that. I try not to look at my numbers. The thing is, when you go onto your dashboard, like they give you every stat you could ever imagine. Yeah. And I get it. They're trying to educate you on if a video is doing well or doing bad or whatever. But um, I think it's kind of good for artists not to have immediate feedback. Like, There's an the argument s- against that, though, and that's Mr. Beast. 
Well, Mr. No, no. Beast has figured he it money out. balled it. So right. he money balled YouTube. YouTube before right. that wasn't like a science. It was like an art. It's mm-hmm. like nobody knew what they were doing. He comes in. He's like, you guys are all idiots. Let's turn this into <laughs> stats and numbers. And I yeah. love him and I hate him for it because I got yeah. the one one perspective. It's like you kind of saw the Mr. Beastification of YouTube. Everyone talks the same. Everyone has that. Hey, guys, what's up? Today we're doing this. And yeah. that's like because he kind of showed like, oh, this is a pretty optimal way of doing it. So it's good because he gave people like handles on their own success, which is valuable. Like, like it's cool that you know why a video does well or not. There's also something that like it kind of kills a little bit of creativity and inspiration when all of a sudden you know like this segment ain't going to do it. Right. Like and you they give you this graph. Have you ever seen the retention graph? No. Oh, it's hilarious. So you start off at 100 percent and then you just see as people leave. And then it goes to the end of the video and you see how many people were left. And like at every moment, you can tell if someone clicked off at that moment. People and get so, fucking good, so much anxiety for that. Oh, and, and what they do now and like this is taught like at YouTube, you know, boot camps is like, look at your retention graph and everything that wasn't good. If people clicked off, you got to you got to cut it. You got to stop. And, and I think that creates its own like, you know, sickness because yeah. then. YouTube boot camps are hilarious. That's so funny that they have YouTube. But it makes sense. I mean, if you wanted to treat it like a business like any other business, if you wanted to get involved and, you know, you wanted to open up a small business somewhere, you know, you could treat YouTube like you're opening up a small business. I, I get it. I get it. It's not my thing, though, so I don't, I don't get that aspect. I think that would fuck with what I do. I think that would get in the way. I think it would fuck with what you do too. I don't I think it gets in the way more than it helps. We've we've had to move away for a while. We really emulated some like creators uh who we liked what they did. But eventually what you realize is like I just have a different audience. And I yeah. have a di- people are here for different reasons. And so I have to find my I can't just rely on a book or not not literally a book, but like the playbook of like what has worked for you. I have to find out like you know not only what my audience wants, but what do I want? Yes, that's I think such that's an important, the most important thing. It is thing. the most important thing. We're not just making, well, I'm not making things for other people. I'm making it because I think it's cool. I think it's interesting. And I think it's valuable just for me to express it. And so I have to find out, like, why do people watch my show? What do I want for my show in a way that even if nobody wants it, I put it in. Like, I have this, like, this whole robot bartender thing and it's like the CGI thing. And I do it because I like it. Yeah, it's fun for me. I get I get a real kick out of that stuff. I'm like I'm a nerd when it comes to that CGI tech stuff, and uh, people wouldn't believe how much time I spend on that. I spend like half my day on like <laughs> just like tweaking this stuff. Like, but that resonates with people. That's one of the reasons why people like it. And I think when when you do something that you like, it's very obvious to the people that are paying attention. I think that's part of the appeal of a lot of shows. You know, I think that that's why it works. I, I mean, I think that's one of the secrets to my success is that I only have on people that I'm actually interested in talking to. So I'm engaged. I'm not just bullshitting my way through someone trying to promote some movie. You know, I'm, I'm actually engaged. If I have yeah. someone on that's promoting a movie, I'm interested in the movie. Right. I want to know what they're doing. If it's a documentary, like, I want to know, like, how did you go about doing this? Like, mm. what's, the, what's the process? I'm actually engaged. When you're faking it and phoning it in, people know it. They feel it. You know, and that's the beauty of your show is I think your show serves multiple purposes. But one of the things is that it, it, it certainly clearly appears to what you're it appeals to what you're interested in. And you act as a watchdog. Like I watched the Celsius video that you put out recently 
and I watched it today. And I was like, this is so valuable because I'm seeing all these people because you, you showed those people that did get scammed and the people that get fucked over by this guy who created this thing. And, you know, they have a voice now. And you can you can also like let all these other motherfuckers that are trying to do something like that know that Coffeezilla is out there, and he's gonna find you, and he's gonna put you on blast, and people are gonna know, and it's gonna be more difficult for the next person. To, and it, again, it's not the wealthy investors that will sue. It's these people that put in two thousand dollars, and it's the only two thousand dollars they had. That's that's where it's so valuable, and and I know that you feel that way, and it comes through in your video. And I think that's why it's appealing and that's why it's working. I, I really discovered early on that nobody cares about the numbers. The numbers are like the headline or whatever, but ultimately you can't make a – like this stuff doesn't matter until you get people involved. Yeah. Until you hear the victims talk. They're the heartbeat of everything because until you hear that like – What's a billion dollar? It's impossible to it's know. Yeah, and it's not. And then, and then you watch the guy, and you're like, "This who would fall for this?" You know, like it's easy to get cynical if you just see the numbers and the guy who defrauded people. Yeah. The second you humanize it and you show a person, and all of a sudden you see someone with all the same problems, and you can just tell, you can see it in their eyes, and they're just wrecked by this guy who who they believe, who truly they believed in. Yes. It's like the biggest betrayal. You trusted somebody with everything. And then they stab you in the back. Like this, uh, Alex Mashinsky, CEO of Celsius, his whole thing was banks are evil, which is not crazy. I mean, it's like, you know, you can understand why a lot of people resonated with that. They're like, and it wasn't even they're evil. They're heartless. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was going to correct that. He said, like, they're greedy. Yeah. Oh. And that's true. Like, it's like. It, and he's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, they, he goes, like, banks are not your friends. True statement, Alex. And then this interviewer is like, but Alex is your friend? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you, basically, you can take the same ride as me, 8%, 8% a year. I'll just give it to you. You know, we're, we're giving, we're doing the same thing as the banks. We're loaning out your money, but we're going to pass on 80% of the revenue back to you instead of the banks, which they take all your money, right? Um, so people bought into that. And they said, that sounds great. Like, a new, hey, the internet changed everything. You know, we think crypto is going to change everything. Why not have a bank that instead, instead of serving its shareholders, it serves its customers? It kind of, like... There's something that makes sense there. It's really compelling. And then come to find out Celsius was never making money. They said they were paying out, you know, you with uh, with their profits. They were paying out you with new deposits, like new people were coming in and they were paying you out. And so it was this giant Ponzi scheme where they set the rewards because they knew if it's high enough, people are just going to flock to them. And so but they had this compelling explanation for why, like it kind of made kind of made a little bit of sense. And then they. When it finally goes wrong, he just get he just walks away. I mean, yeah, he's getting sued civilly, but where's the criminal action? He's going to go to jail, probably not. And it's like that is so messed up. That is such a that itself is a crime. I I, I think it's so sick that we allow we throw the book at people who will rob a store with a gun, right? Steal ten thousand bucks. People who steal millions, billions of dollars often get away with it because it's just done a little differently. There's not the drama of the gun and somebody's in, even if no one gets shot. There's, it's just, hey, it's just he pushed a few pencils around. He got you to sign a few shady, but that's just as sick and twisted. But it's just done in a way that socially is slightly more acceptable and get they get away with it way more often. But I would contend that these people are literally financially murdering people. 
after Celsius, people committed suicide because of, I mean, literally, it's a yes. fact. People committed suicide because they lost everything. I'm sure FTX as well. FT, of course. You know, the bigger the bigger the scam, there's just statistically, it almost becomes impossible that you don't at least, if not financially, sort of metaphorically murdering a family, you literally kill somebody. And people walk away with, not like, either only the guy at the top goes down or nobody goes down. And that is crazy to me. It's like, what message are we sending via our our regulators? Basically, it's like, hey, you're going to get a slap on the wrist if you're caught. And this, what you just did, is why you're so successful. That's real. This is how you really feel. This is your re- and this is why your show works. And this is this is it right there. Like what you just did is why I'm interested in your show. Because it's, this is your real thoughts something and opinions. Has to cha- yes. I mean, something has to change where you can't, you can't just go, go on like this where if, if we're really going to allow if, – if we're going to you know, take our financial future in our own hands, we're going to allow these influencers to talk about finance, somebody has to be there when things go wrong. Yes. And there has to be consequences. If you lie and if you cheat and you steal, there has to be a guy at the end of the day who's going to put you in trouble. And I think a YouTube video is not nearly enough. That's why I'm constantly saying like, hey, can someone from, someone from the government get involved? Like, go lock this guy up. Go lock somebody. You know, f- I know it's like a lot of this is new. Like the crypto stuff is new. But it, they're doing old crimes in a new way. Yes. It's always been illegal to steal people's money. Yes. And that is what's happening. And that's why I put these people on my show. So you don't think it's some like rug pull where it's all fake money. No, there was real money in these companies and they just stole it a new way. But it's they're still stealing money. And the fact that we haven't found a way to put some of these people in jail is mind blowing to me. And we're sending a bad message that, hey, just keep doing it. Just go start. A new one. There are people now uh, they were trying to start GTX. After FTX, oh some new some new guys were trying to start G- like the oh new boy. thing, and, then and it's HTX like HTX is next. Yeah. Jesus it's just, Christ! It's just like you know you have to. That's half the purpose of the law is to. It's partly you know for you know you did something wrong you get punished, but also part of it is you do something wrong you send a message to socially you socially signal that we do not tolerate this. And right now the social signal we're we're sending and accepting is. If you scam, there's a very high likelihood you will get away with it. And if you don't get away with it, you'll get a little slap on the wrist. You'll get a little fine. And that's not that's not working. No, it's not. Hey, man, thanks for being here. This was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, Joe. I appreciate your show. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, I really enjoyed this. It was Thank great. you so much. Thank you. Um, tell everybody how to get your show, what your social media is, all YouTube, that jazz. YouTube, CoffeeZilla, that's it. Uh, that's the place to find, best place to find me. Um, I appreciate you guys having me on. This is surreal. Been a My big pleasure. fan of the show. Thank you. Appreciate you. Yeah. All right. Bye, everybody.